zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing For Your Eyes Only, released June 26, 1981. It was written by Richard Maybaum and Michael G. Wilson, directed by John Glenn, and released by United Artists. Because this is our first James Bond movie, I have to tell the whole story leading up so no, no get you ready don't. you don't here we go <laughs> you don't have to do that author ian fleming created the character of james bond in 1953 bond is a commander in the royal navy reserve and agent 007 of mi6 the british secret intelligence service an aspect borrowed from fleming's own life experiences working for british intelligence during world war ii even during his time in the service fleming assured his compatriots that he would one day write the spy story to end all spy stories the name James Bond came from an American ornithologist and the author of Birds of the West Indies, whose novel Fleming owned as an avid bird watcher. The name appealed to Fleming specifically on account of how plain and boring it sounded. Fleming envisioned the character as resembling American singer Hoagy Carmichael, and the artist is even mentioned by name in Casino Royale, the first official novel of the series. Fleming had composed 12 novels and two short story collections before his death in 1964 by heart attack, with the last two novels published posthumously. He wrote these novels at his GoldenEye estate in Jamaica, which would obviously become the name of a much later Bond film, but which took its name from a World War II operation headed by Commander Fleming, with a set goal of maintaining an intelligence framework in Spain should the country fall to German power. From the beginning, Fleming seemed desperate to see his hero adapted to the screen, and his rush to have the works optioned would result in multiple headaches for the franchise down the line. Fleming began writing Casino Royale in 1952, saw the story published in 53, and optioned in 54 by CBS for $1,000. CBS adapted the short into an hour-long drama for their television series Climax, which featured a live performance adapted from a different novel each week. Their third episode was Casino Royale, starring Barry Nelson as American secret agent Jimmy Bond, facing off against Le Chiffre, as played by Peter Lorre, Obviously, changes were made to appeal to the American public. In 55, shortly after the television broadcast, producer Gregory Radoff bought the film rights to Casino Royale for $6,000 and turned to Lorenzo Semple Jr. to adapt it into a potential screenplay, but both found the character confoundingly unbelievable and stupid. <laughs> Which begs the question, <laughs> why would you option this story in the first place? They briefly considered retooling it with a female lead to star Susan Hayward as Jane Bond, but the plans never went anywhere after 20th Century Fox turned the project down and Radoff passed away shortly thereafter. I hope we get a Jane Bond at some point. Eventually. No, I, I do absolutely want a female Bond character. I just don't like the the, the such easy switch to Jane. Oh, yeah. No, that's, I, that, like, that yeah, was not my primary focus. Yeah. <laughs> just call her James. Yeah, exactly. Just have her still be James Bond. Yeah. His agent producer, Charles K. Feldman, bought the film rights to the novel from Radoff's widow, but we'll come back to that. 
1958, the third Bond novel, Moonraker, was adapted into a South African radio play, and the same year, a series of James Bond comics premiered. Also in 1958, Ian Fleming was meeting regularly with friend and film producer Kevin McClory and discussing changes that could be made to the James Bond character to better adapt him to the screen. In particular, they worked together on a screenplay called, at the time, Longitude 78 West, and later retitled Thunderball. In the middle of retooling Bond for film, CBS came calling again, intending to center an entire show on Fleming's Super Spy and contracting him to write 32 episodes, but sadly the show fell apart. Evidently, there was a falling out between Fleming and McClory, and Fleming conspired to cheat McClory out of any rights to the Thunderball story. However, in court, McClory was awarded story rights and consequently the ability to use the character of James Bond in future adaptations of Thunderball. He technically had the rights to make a Thunderball movie whenever he wanted. Huh. And he tried to often. <laughs> and succeeded like once. Anywhere. He succeeded once, yes. Well, twice, technically. <laughs> in 1961, Harry Saltzman and Albert Cubby Broccoli co-founded Eon Productions, an acronym for Everything or Nothing, for the express purposes of adapting and producing Fleming's novels into a series of films. Albert Broccoli approached Charles Feldman, who still held the rights to Casino Royale, and made an offer to buy them, but Feldman refused, instead partnering with friend and director Howard Hawks, intending to collaborate with legendary screenwriter Lee Brackett on a big-screen adaptation of the first novel to star Cary Grant. Huh. Saltzman and Broccoli found Dr. No to be the lowest-risk introduction to the series, especially since the plots don't typically lead from one book to another, so the order didn't matter much. In 1962, they released their first film, Dr. No, starring Scottish actor Sean Connery as the British super-spy, who would return for four more films in the next five years. From Russia with Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, and You Only Live Twice. Thunderball, of course, would include a story credit for Kevin McClory. Charles Feldman and Howard Hawks abandoned their plans of a Casino Royale adaptation upon seeing Dr. No, since the iconic British agent would no longer be acceptable to audiences as an American. I don't, that, that seems so weird to me. So they were they were trying to simultaneously produce Bond films. Right. Mm -hmm. But how because could they Ian both have the rights to it? Because Ian Fleming kept selling the rights to individual books to people. Okay. Or because he lost them in court, as in the case of Thunderball. Okay. All right. So I guess he just did, he was just piecemealing it out one book at a time to the highest yeah. bill. The problem theater. is he really wanted these to be TV shows and movies, and he was so desperate that he took every offer that came his way. And so then suddenly a lot of people had the rights to this story. Yeah. And they didn't get it all back until very recently. But it was sort of first one to the to market was going to be the exactly. winner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And luckily, uh, Saltzman and Broccoli basically put this whole thing together specifically as a James Bond movie machine. So yeah. that's why they were able to put one out every year for a while. They did 62, 63, 64, 65, 67. So lots of them. And Feldman reached out to make a deal with Eon to co-produce an adaptation of Casino Royale. Connery was not Fleming's first choice for the character, but he was so pleased with the performance in Dr. No that on his next novel, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, he set about retconning the spy's history to introduce a Scottish heritage. <laughs> Ironically, by the time that novel was <laughs> yeah. being adapted into the sixth Bond film, Connery had tired of the role and stepped away from the series. The part was recast with Australian actor George Lazenby, who consequently spent his single turn as the character wearing a kilt. <laughs> Insanely, when Feldman reached out to Connery about an independent Casino Royale feature, Connery was totally game, but Feldman was stupidly unwilling to cough up the million-dollar paycheck that Connery required. 
Instead, Feldman turned around with his rights to the Bond character and a script from Ben Hecht and pitched a James Bond spoof film to Columbia. 1967's unofficial James Bond film, Casino Royale, technically starred David Niven, Peter Sellers, and Woody Allen as various competing James Bonds and turned a tidy profit, ranking among the highest grossing films of the year despite being utterly unwatchable garbage. <laughs> yeah, oh my god. In 1969, On Her Majesty's Secret Service hit theaters with a new Bond and people were not into it. But amazingly, Saltzman and Broccoli were able to lure Connery back for one more outing, 1971's Diamonds Are Forever, before he made his official exit from the Eon Bond canon. Bond was recast again, and this time it stuck. Roger Moore starred in 1973's Live and Let Die, and probably on account of being a known entity, wildly outperformed the failure of essential unknown George Lazenby in the role. Moore followed up with The Man with the Golden Gun, The Spy Who Loved Me, and the most fantastical of the bunch, the spacefaring Moonraker, before it was decided that Bond needed to return to Earth with a good old-fashioned spy story. Yeah, it's when you introduce, like, laser guns as being commonplace. Yes. It's like, how do you roll back from that? (laughs) You don't, but they are. you got to deal with the times, Richard. Lasers are common. We all have them now. In 1975, Saltzman sold his share of Eon's holding company to United Artists, and moving forward, Albert Broccoli would be listed as the sole producer of the series. By 1981, all 12 Fleming novel titles had been adapted into features of the same name, but the short story collection titles were still available. The first compilation was published as For Your Eyes Only, while the second, Octopussy and the Living Daylights, would be cannibalized into two separate Bond outings down the line. For Your Eyes Only was actually intended to be the final Bond film of the 70s, even appearing by name in a title card at the end of The Spy Who Loved Me. James Bond will return in For Your Eyes Only. But Star Wars changed all that, and For Your Eyes Only was postponed in favor of something that could cash in on the space craze. Amusingly, some articles after Moonraker announced the next Bond film as The Sea Wolves, which would star (laughs) Roger Moore in a very Bondish role. After Moonraker, Broccoli had begun screen testing potential new Bond actors because Moore's contract ran out after Moonraker. After that, it was film by film. When Moore found out about the screen tests, rumors spread that he was preparing to step away from the role. Broccoli had actors David Warbeck, Michael Jaston, and Patrick Mower on standby in case Roger Moore left, and even officially offered the part to eventual Bond actor Timothy Dalton, who turned it down for the second time after passing on On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Dalton was not comfortable with the direction the spy had taken as of late. Turns out the producers were big fans of Flash Gordon the year before, which is why they came back to Dalton in the first place, and it's also how Topol came to be cast as Columbo, and the Molina part was written specifically for Ornella Muti, who was not available for the role. How crazy would that be, like a Flash Gordon reunion with Dalton, (laughs) Topol, and Muti? The short story collection entitled For Your Eyes Only was compiled from stories developed for the abandoned Bond CBS series, And the plot of the film comes from two separate stories in the collection. Christopher Wood, screenwriter of The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker, turned in a first draft of For Your Eyes Only, but goes uncredited in the finished product. Apparently they used nothing from his draft. John Glenn, regular editor and second unit director of the franchise, was invited for the first time to the director's chair. Sheena Easton's theme song, written by the film's composer Bill Conti, with lyrics from Mike Leeson, Easton's regular lyricist, was nominated for the Best Original Song Oscar, but lost to the Arthur theme. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember the Arthur theme. You will. <laughs> it's very close. 
During the Oscar ceremony, the song was performed on stage with dancers dressed as famous characters from the franchise and was followed immediately by Roger Moore taking the stage to present Albert Broccoli with the Irving Thalberg Honorary Award for his contributions to the industry. The movie outperformed expectations and rescued United Artists from the dire straits it had been put in by the failure of Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate the year before. We start with the signature strobing barrel shot as a circle moves through frame and then follows current Bond actor Roger Moore to the center of a blank stage as he turns to fire into camera. Blood drips down from above and the gun barrel wavers and drops to the bottom right corner. And then Iris is out on a dissolve to Stoke Pogus Cemetery, which is actually next door to the location used for Goldfinger's golf course in mm. the film. But it doesn't fully Iris out. It actually really bothered me that it didn't just iris completely open to the scene it just started to and it then it starts cut. to and yeah. then it completely cuts and it's really jarring especially because the the contrast in picture quality from the iris circle yeah. that we get to the finished shot yeah it's weird this whole opening scene is weird yeah <laughs> weird indeed we see bond carry a bouquet of roses to the headstone of Teresa Bond, 1943 to 1969, beloved wife of James Bond. We have all the time in the world. Originally, this scene was written to introduce a new, younger Bond, probably Timothy Dalton in particular, and connect him to the character's history, but the pages were never swapped out when Roger Moore decided to return. Yeah, do, we don't see a wife in any previous film, do we? We do, we do. yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Obviously, Teresa Bond was Tracy Draco, played by actress Diana Rigg, before the events of 1969's On Her Majesty's Secret Service, wherein James, played by George Lazenby, won her heart and hand in marriage, only to have her ruthlessly shot to death by Blofeld's henchwoman Irma Bunt on their wedding day. The inscription, We Have All the Time in the World, is a reference to one of the last things he said to her in life, and the first thing he says to her lifeless corpse. There's no hurry, you see. We have all the time in the world. It's also the title of Louis Armstrong's theme for that film. A priest rushes out of the church to inform Bond of a call from the offices of Universal Exports, a recurring front for the secret intelligence services. Evidently, it's something serious, and they're sending a helicopter immediately to retrieve him. It sets down in a nearby field, and Bond climbs into the back seat of the copter, which is separated from the front seat by a partition. We cut from the chopper taking off to an insert of a man in a Nehru jacket petting a long-haired white Persian cat. The implication being that this is regular Bond rival Ernst Stavro Blofeld, who we last saw in the Eon canon back in Diamonds Are Forever, played by Charles Gray, and always cradling his unnamed feline companion. We can only assume this is Blofeld because, by now, Kevin McClory and Albert Broccoli were through playing nice, and McClory was protective of story elements that originated in his Thunderball script, such as Blofeld and the villain conglomeration Smersh, replaced in the Eon films by Spectre. I've never cared much for Spectre, which is intended to stand for Special Executive for Counterintelligence Terrorism Revenge and Extortion. It doesn't seem fair to take the S and P from Special at the start, but for Counterintelligence to only contribute a C and the inclusion of revenge in a list of very real chargeable offenses is <laughs> Smersh, on the other hand, is actually a portmanteau of a Russian phrase that means death to spies, which is more succinct. Yeah, but it's a weird word to say. It is. And <laughs> Spectre has like that haunting thing to it also. But Smersh is what's in all the Ian Fleming novels, which is why it feels so weird that it's Spectre in all the movies. How is it spelled? 
S-M-E-R-S-H. Strange that McClory was able to lay claim to it, though, since Smersh was a real-life group consisting of multiple Russian counter-intel agencies and was named by Joseph Stalin himself. Pseudo-Blofeld operates a remote control system, and we see in this wider shot that he's in a wheelchair with a neck brace. He flicks on a pair of monitors to reveal a camera in the helicopter and another angle with the chopper's POV. When Blofeld flicks the activate switch, Vaughn's weirdly suspicious pilot is suddenly electrocuted through his headphones and collapses at the stick. Yeah, at first I was super suspicious of the pilot. Yeah, because he's making all these glances. Like, yeah, and then when he kills him, I was just like, oh, okay. He wasn't so in on it? He wasn't in on it? Oh, but then Blofeld says, oh, yeah, that was one of my lesser guys. It's like, oh, yeah, he's totally in on it. <laughs> so I killed him because I didn't think that he would follow my instructions, I guess. <laughs> yes. I, I should also say that having seen it like dozens of times, yeah. <laughs> that I probably have, when I, when I say when I first saw it, it means like ages ago. Yeah. <laughs> Bond quickly recognizes the danger of being trapped in the back seat separate from the craft's controls. Just when it appears the helicopter will crash in the river, it pulls up at the last second, and Bond hears the laughing voice of Fofeld. <laughs> in at least one version of the script, the character identified himself as Bond's most famous villain, but they were required to remove it. Blofeld swings the helicopter all around a nearby gas works, and it's some pretty fancy flying. Mm -hmm. Bond makes the executive decision to climb out on a strut and maneuver his way to the front of the craft. All the while, Blofeld tries to toss him off, even dangling him over the tallest smokestack of the gasworks. I feel like if you actually want to kill him, though, just you could bomb. make. I was gonna say you could make real <laughs> quick work of it once he gets out onto the stretch. Just crash the damn thing. Yeah. Why? Like you've or had. Or just your, don't pull up earlier when yeah, you pulled you up. You have your fun. Like you've had it. He knows. Like yeah. what else is there? You, he just wants to scare him. He just wants to see him be scared. Like he didn't want to kill him. I don't know. <laughs> he wants to put him in an easily escapable situation involving an overly elaborate and exotic death. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you just shoot him now? I mean, I'll go get a gun. We'll shoot him together. It'll be fun. Bang. Dead. Done. Throughout the confrontation, we never see Blofeld's face, but Bond does notice him and the controls sitting on a nearby rooftop. When Bond gets into the front seat, rather than shove the unconscious pilot to the co-pilot's chair, he yanks the man out and drops him 30 stories to his death. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to say, I wasn't sure if he was dead before, but I mean, he's it was just electricity. He could be unconscious, but yeah. he didn't take a pulse or anything. Bond is still unable to pilot the craft until he finds where Blofeld has patched himself into the electronics and yanks the remote access loose. Uh, I'm wondering now if that line of he was one of my less useful people was added later. That makes sense. It's like, did Bond just kill that guy? Yeah. That was just an innocent helicopter pilot? <laughs> yeah, he works for Universal Exports and he got <laughs> thrown out. Blofeld bashes at his now useless controls and his cat jumps away as the helicopter closes in on the wheelchair-bound supervillain. Bond swoops low, impaling the base of the chair on a helicopter skid and lifting Blofeld high above the gasworks. As they approach the tallest smokestack again, Blofeld makes a bizarre offer in exchange for his life. We can do it here! I buy you in delicatessen! In stainless steel! A line which was apparently suggested by Albert Broccoli as a reference to the real-life practice of New York gangsters of the 1930s who would occasionally offer full-service delis as bribes, complete with stainless steel countertops. It might not make much sense to us today, but I guess it also didn't make much sense <laughs> to audiences in 1981 since it was no longer the 1930s by then. <laughs> and it certainly wouldn't have made sense to Blofeld himself, who is canonically Polish but moved to Sweden and later Turkey during World War II and would never have made this reference. 
Bond tips the helicopter forward and dumps the full villain and his wheelchair down the chute, and it looks like they really dropped something into this chimney, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure what or how they did this. It's definitely the cheesiest cold open we get from any Bond film, beside maybe our next outing, which starts with a circus clown being chased through East Berlin with a Fabergé egg. <laughs> God, I haven't watched any of these movies. Oh, this boy. sounds ridiculous. <laughs> The message sent, though, was clear that the franchise can survive without Blofeld, who audiences would now consider deceased. Though it didn't stop McClory from remaking Thunderball two years later with Max von Sydow as Blofeld and Connery returning to the Bond role after a 22-year absence. Obviously, Blofeld has re-entered the Eon canon, played most recently by Christoph Waltz in 2015's Spectre. And No Time to Die. Oh, is he in that one too? Mm. I couldn't remember if he died in Spectre. We cut directly from Blofeld's comical death to our patented Maurice Binder opening credit sequence, complete with guns, girls, and for the first time, the actual performer of the film's theme song, Sheena Easton. Once Binder had met her in person, he insisted on her being a part of the shoot. The sequence involves a lot of underwater imagery. Now, I was reading up about this uh, because... Apparently, like, he had to put Sheena Easton's head into a vice right. or something to hold her head still because they were shooting it with such a f- unique film stock. They shoot in 70 millimeter for these sequences. Mm-hmm. And whenever they were doing extreme close-ups of her face, any motion just had her motion blur shaking all over the place. So they built a metal vice that they could tuck under her hair and hold her head in place. And she said it was the most painful thing she's ever done, but it looks great on film. Uh, that was the other thing. When she said that they captured it in 70 millimeter, I was like, are these shot in 70 millimeter? Not the whole movie. Yeah. The, like I was trying to like this movie's not shot in 70. No, millimeter. it's mostly just because of the way Binder did these uh, scenes where the shots would be sliding back and forth across each other. He just mm. wanted to have a Need lot have of real estate. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Before Easton, the producers had hired Debbie Harry to sing the theme song as written by Conti and Leeson. But Debbie Harry writes her own music and insisted on an original song with the same title performed by Blondie, which was rejected, but appears on their 1982 album, The Hunter. Honestly, I don't care much for either version of this theme, but I definitely prefer Easton's. Very rarely are the rejected Bond themes better than the ones they went with. Johnny Cash's Thunderball is really an awful fit for the film compared to Tom Jones's. There's a rumble in the sky and all the world can hear it call. They shudder at the fury of the mighty Thunderball. Thunderball. Alice Cooper's Man with the Golden Gun does not live up to Lulu's ultra-literal interpretation. Yeah. And Ace of Base's Goldeneye theme might be the worst of all the rejected There's versions. Ace of Base Goldeneye theme? Yes, there oh is. Oh my god, please play that for me. Muse's Skyfall never had a chance up against Adele, but it's also fairly bland, even for a Muse song. From the end of the theme, we rise to the surface of the ocean off the Albanian coast to see a ship, the St. George's, 
loaded with fishermen pulling in nets. A man moves below deck to sneak into a hidden chamber loaded with high-tech radar and sonar equipment, fully staffed by a team of intelligence experts using a machine we will come to know as ATAC. Do you guys recall the last time we saw an ATAC team? Oh. A-T-A-C? Yeah. Shoot. It was almost the title of the movie. It was almost the title of the movie. Um, was it the? It was the one where the like the random guys formed a group that went to South America. Nope, that's no, high risk. That's that was high risk. It wasn't a tech. Okay. Uh, was it the one with the 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 stunt woman where she was like the martial arts expert? No. no. Firecracker. Yeah. No. No, it was a team of guys, right? The ATAC team was a team of guys, and in that film it stood for Anti-Terrorism Action Command. Uh, I don't remember. Nighthawks. Uh. Oh, yeah. All right. But here it stands for Automatic Targeting Attack Communicator. The man who moved below deck trades places with another agent locked to his desk and begins decoding an intercepted Russian signal. Suddenly, alarms are blaring. Outside the ship, it seems the guys tossing the nets have gotten a bit overzealous in their cover and are currently reeling in an enormous sea mine caught in their net. When it touches the side of the ship, it goes off. An attempt is made to self-destruct the ATAC system, but water blasting into the room interrupts that process, and the St. George's is sunk with all souls aboard. So that moment is especially horrifying because because he's chained to the he's desk. chained to the desk like he ties himself to the desk as he let like they change shifts and he just yeah. locks yeah. himself in and i'm just like oh you're locked in because of this very reason but they all died yeah. i know so, they, yeah, yeah but but also so. you had one job which was to pull that damn and lever didn't yeah. do it we cut to the ministry of defense a pair of men meet with the minister of defense sir frederick gray to inform him that their decoder supercomputer has been sunk unself-destructed and is within reach of the enemy how deep is the water there not deep enough i'm afraid i like that line yeah the story of the recovery of an enemy cipher calls to mind the events of another recent roger moore vehicle the sea wolves based on a true historical operation and also the german enigma machines used to encrypt all nazi communications until one of the devices was recovered from a captured german trawler we cut from the Ministry of Defense to a shot of the Kremlin at night and then into KGB headquarters to the office of General Gogol, played here and in many other Bond films by Walter Gotel. I always felt that Gogol was a loose inspiration for Nikolai Yakov, one of Sterling Archer's potential fathers on that series. Yeah, for sure. Gogol is getting information about the sunken ATAC transmitter and informs the caller that their friend in Greece has been enlisted to help. We cut to Greece where a man shuttles a woman in a seaplane to a yacht called Triana in a bay. The plane is spotted by the yacht's passengers and their parrot. The seaplane passenger is Melina Havelock, played by Carol Bouquet, and she's visiting her parents on board the Triana. Even the people on the other boats recognize Melina and wave to her. From the deck of the ship, it appears this is a treasure hunting vessel with lots of ancient pottery in plastic bins. Her pilot seems a little suspicious as he starts the plane back up and takes off. Molina offers gifts to her parents, a dress for mom, a small box for dad, and a bag of pistachios for Max the parrot. Just as she heads inside with the nuts, the pilot loops back around directly over the ship and unloads many rounds into her parents. Molina rushes to them, and then, coming to grips with the loss, looks directly into camera, and we push in tight on her furious eyes. This is like super upsetting, because <laughs> I think it's more so upsetting that we had such a 
awful cold open that was so cheesy and then we instantly went to a very upsetting like ship blowing up and then we went to a very upsetting parents getting murdered in front of you and like what is with the tone of this movie yeah in retrospect i think most people agree that the dumping Blofeld down the chimney thing is a really corny, dumb way to start the movie. Yeah. But at the time, it did fucking gangbusters in the theater. Did it? Like, people loved it. I guess it's just also the juxtaposition of that and then these two things. And then even the rest of the film, nothing is as dark as those two moments yeah. for the rest of the film. That's true. We cut back to the Ministry of Defense just as M's secretary, Moneypenny, arrives for work. She barely has time to apply lipstick before Bond pops into the office behind her. I love Money Penny's like makeup kit here though because it, it is so Bond like that she opens a filing cabinet and drawer a and springs it, up and out it of it. pops up out of it. I'm like, even she gets gadgets made for her. Yeah, because yeah. it, it doesn't just pop out, it like goes like it's like got some kind of <laughs> mechanisms powering it. <laughs> Which for sure isn't necessary. <laughs> you can do this thing unmotorized. She lets Bond know that M is on leave because sadly actor Bernard Lee, who had portrayed M in every installment up to now, had passed away from stomach cancer during production before the time came to shoot his scenes. He did make an effort to record those scenes, but he was too ill to manage it. Before Bond enters the office, Moneypenny notices that he's carrying a pink flower. Oh, haven't you forgotten something? Oh, well, as M's away. Like, (laughs) I was going to give it to M, but he's not here. Yeah, it can be for you. He tosses her the flower and heads inside. Waiting in M's office are Frederick Gray, the Minister of Defense, and Chief of Staff Bill Tanner. Bond is filled in on the capabilities of the ATAC transmitter. Turns out it doesn't just decode, it can encrypt orders to other Allied ships to fire on Allied targets. British intelligence reached out to a local treasure hunter, Havelock, about locating the sunken device, but they were killed on their ship by an assassin pilot named Gonzales. Their only description of the man comes from Havelock's daughter, Melina, the lone survivor of the attack. So my understanding is that the real problem isn't that they would end up blowing themselves up. It's that they would have to tell all the ships, you can't take receive any orders. They'd have and to therefore, build a whole new infrastructure. Yeah, they, yeah, they have yeah. to basically start over from scratch in yeah. terms of their communications. Bond is instructed to locate Gonzalez at a Greek villa and basically torture him for information on who hired him. Bond is handed a classified dossier wrapped in a band that reads, For Your Eyes Only. We cut to Bond rushing up the winding road to the villa in a white lotus esprit. He locates the property and intentionally drives past to sneak in on foot. But if you were trying to be inconspicuous... Yeah, this is the wrong car for that. Right, yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't you drive some, like, cruddy, beat-up, like, you know, truck with a bunch of chickens Citroen in the back of it? <laughs> yeah, it should. he should be in a crap car for some reason, but he's not. Yeah, he's the, well, I mean, like it's just the James Bond thing is you're right. never in a crap car. But uh yeah, they, cuz they switched from cuz even the spy who loved me had a lotus. The more right, fam- that, the, that's the more famous lotus, yeah. the one that can go underwater and stuff. Uh I don't know why they made the switch from like Aston Martins and more more classy cars to this that was to the, the 80s, lotus. you know. Yeah. The style change. When Bond sees a member of Gonzalez's security team making out with a woman, he takes the opportunity to sneak by, and we cut to a pool crowded with bikini-clad ladies. Bond watches from the bushes as a businessman in glasses carries a briefcase through the party to Gonzalez. It seems this is his pay for the Havelock killings, and Gonzalez snatches up a stack of bills and tosses them in the lap of the nearest bikini girl. Bond hears a branch break behind him, and as he investigates, he is quickly captured by a pair of Gonzalez's goons. 
Bond is presented to Gonzalez, who recognizes the Walther PPK as a standard-issue MI6 weapon and orders him taken away. When Gonzalez jumps from his diving board into the pool, we hear an arrow zip through the shot. And it takes a moment before the guests realize Gonzalez was shot between jumping and hitting the water. He has a large crossbow bolt sticking out of his back. With the guards distracted by the screaming guests, Bond elbows a pair of men and yanks up a poolside umbrella to defend himself with. I, I like that the uh, money delivering guy, his, his his like henchman that he brought, starts to rush into the fight and the guy goes, no, no, no. No, no, no. This let is not this, our problem. Let this play out. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see what this guy does. Bond rushes to the property line and jumps off a ledge using the umbrella as a sort of parachute before running back down the hill to the public road. That would not work at all. Never heard of parachutes? Umbrellas don't work as parachutes. I'm going to cut in the clip of Lex Luthor saying, Never heard of parachutes? <laughs> Superman right there. Along the way, he comes face to face with Melina Havelock, armed with a crossbow, and she fires over his shoulder to take out a guard. They run through the trees together. The businessman collects the money that he was here to deliver and leaves with it, taking pains even to recollect the stack that he threw at the bikini girl on his way out. <laughs> She's like, ah, <laughs> like freaked out by it. I, I was watching this with my dad and my niece. <laughs> my niece was like, "Ah, you took her money. He didn't even let her keep that one stack. Before they make it back to the Lotus, some of Gonzalez's guards have found it and bust open the windows only to trigger a rather extreme security system that self-destructs the entire vehicle. Well, I hope you have a car. This is one of my favorite Bond gags. Yeah. Because you get so excited. You often get very excited for a car scene in these Bond films. And just to have it explode immediately now here's my question what causes the explosion just breaking that window uh so like if bond were just driving the car no. and that window broke would the whole thing explode because no, he engaged the alarm which okay is it's part of the alarm. so anything that happens when that alarm is engaged other than him disengaging the yeah, alarm yeah, like if you parked it by a golf course and a, and a rogue golf ball happened to fly it would explode it, the it whole car would explode. explode he's in the grocery store someone bumps their cart into it <laughs> You remember that commercial? The, the Viper? Yeah, you knew exactly where yeah. I was going. <laughs> now, I always, as a kid, thought that the Viper actually produced a hologram snake to protect your car. What, would a hologram protect your car at I all? don't know. <laughs> just, I just like, thought it was it? really cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's like all those hollow supermen. Apparently, the message of this explosion was that Bond would not rely on fancy gadgets this time around. So even though he had a Lotus, it's like, boom, now he doesn't have a Lotus. But we'll give him another Lotus later, so (laughs) who cares? They're chased from the property by men with dogs until they reach a yellow 1980 Citroen, and Bond seems disappointed at first by the car until a bullet strikes the tree beside him, and they speed off together. We also get a, like a... (laughs) Like a... a, Trying to indicate how shitty this car is. It's weird because so much of these movies are paid for with product placement and to include a Citroen and just be like, what a garbage heap. Yeah. It's like a current year Citroen. But I will say this, the car goes the distance. It does. Barely. Bond asks who she is and she explains that she is Melina, daughter of the recently assassinated divers. The car chase continues through the narrow streets of a quaint village in the area. On a sharp turn, the Citroen rolls off the road, avoiding a bus. The same bus blocks the cars chasing them long enough for them to flip the Citroen back on its wheels, and Bond offers to drive this time. 
When the bad guys start firing guns, the bus reverses to give them room, and the chase is back on. Still zigzagging down narrow mountain roads that reminded me of the opening scenes of Commando, when John Matrix is chasing the bad guys down the mountain he lives okay. on. Yeah, yeah. The baddies manage to run the Citroen off the road a second time, and it rolls down a hill past crowds of farmers with nets stretched under the trees to catch falling olives. That's what that was. Yeah. Like, I kept seeing this car, like, you know, missing their turns and stuff like that and going down. I'm like, why are there so many nets? And yeah. why are there random people on every hillside here? <laughs> They're collecting. Luckily, the car stops on its wheels this time, and they make another quick getaway. This time, one of the two bad guy cars is run off the road and slides on its roof down to the next switchback. Bond swerves around it and down the mountain again, and actually jumps the car chasing them. The driver is so distracted by the move that the surviving baddie car ramps off the road and lodges at the very top of a tree, causing hundreds of olives to rain down into the nets of the people collecting them. And car parts. <laughs> and also a hubcap, yeah. <laughs> Bond introduces himself properly, and we cut to them that night, staying at the Hotel Bella Vista. The smashed-up Citroen is parked right out front, so I hope they're not staying the night. Turns out they aren't. They're leaving right now for a flight at 11. Bond assumes Melina's job here is done, having killed the man responsible for her parents' death, but she has intentions of continuing her mission on the path to whoever paid Gonzalez. Unfortunately for her, that's exactly the information Bond came to extract, but now Gonzalez is dead, so they have no leads. Bond warns her that revenge can be dangerous business with a quote from Confucius. The Chinese have a saying, before setting out on revenge, you first dig two graves. And I really wanted her to respond with, I'll dig as many graves as it takes. <laughs> she claims to Bond that it is a trait of Greek ethnicity that loved ones are properly avenged. How often does that <laughs> come in? <laughs> like, like, oh, well, my cousin got murdered. I guess I'll follow that guy. Back at the Ministry of Defense, Bond gets a dressing down for letting Molina kill Gonzalez. He tries to win back the minister and chief of staff with a new breadcrumb. He saw a man deliver money to Gonzalez, and perhaps this man could lead them to the source. He's advised to utilize something called the Identigraph to learn this contact's name. Bond makes a visit to Q Branch, where the first gadget he sees is a fake cast worn by Q's assistant Smithers, which swings out rapidly to smash in a dummy's face, revealing Smithers' real arm underneath. Q, as played by Desmond Llewellyn, leads Bond to the Identigraph. The password to the Identigraph room is the first five notes of the theme from The Spy Who Loved Me. I don't suppose you find it funny in the field. Indeed I don't. Making this the second consecutive Bond film with a five-note movie reference tone combination yeah. after Close Encounters was used to enter a locked room in Moonraker. I liked the gadget that they passed that was like an umbrella that had spikes on the ends yeah. of it that closed around the user of the yeah. umbrella. But only when it got wet. So it's like <laughs> if they use this in the rain, it will eat them. Like a giant piranha plant umbrella. Inside the identigraph room, Q starts explaining exactly how this machine works, but Bond seems well-versed and loads a random disc into the machine tray without instruction. Now, these things, he pulls out it looks like a pizza side, like a deep dish pizza, mm -hmm. and that's that's a drive, like like a yeah. disc that he would put into this computer. And apparently, they hold like a megabyte of information each of these discs. <laughs> but that's how they're running this program. Bond is instructed to simply describe the man, and as he does, we basically get a digital police sketch of the character. 
Bond is able to describe the blue-gray hue of the man's eyes, despite the fact that he saw him from a minimum 50 feet away for the entire scene. A woman named Sharon enters the identograph room with drinks for the men. It looks like Q Branch is now empty outside, so they've been here for hours working on this face. Yeah, yeah. My my niece said the same thing. She says, wait, where did everyone go? It's yeah. Just, well, you can see that their coats are now, their shirts are now off, and yeah. they have more more than one cup of coffee with them. Yeah. So they've, they've been at this for seemingly hours. It's also interesting that the the person who brings them coffee has also been given the password to this like secret locked chamber within mm-hmm. the Q branch building. It seems like this should be a very protected room. Well, maybe once it's occupied, the it's just the door o- it's opens. Just open. That seems dangerous too. You just get killed in there because <laughs> oh, it's occupied. So it's unlocked. Bond is satisfied with the rendering. Once a pair of octagonal steel frame glasses are added to the face, the computer immediately spits out a photograph. Ah, so the man we want is Emile Leopold Locke. An enforcer in the Brussels underworld. From the file, they determine that this man is guilty of several murders and was serving a life sentence for at least some of them when he strangled a psychiatrist and escaped from Neymar Prison in Belgium. His last known area of operation was Cortina, Italy, where Bond is headed now. When Bond arrives in Cortina, driving his second Lotus for the film, the city is coated in snow. Apparently, this town is usually very snowy, but when they were getting ready to shoot this, it had like the warmest winter in decades and so Mm. they had to ship snow in from all over bond heads up to his hotel room and starts some hot water running in the sink which allows the room to steam up until he can read his contacts information on the mirror tofana 10 a.m and we cut right there bond and his contact share a sign and countersign the snow this year is better at innsbruck but not at san moritz he learns this man is named luigi the ministry's north italy contact Luigi says he has a Greek contact who can for sure locate Locke. They're all set to meet this man at a nearby Olympic ice rink. Cortina hosted the Olympics in 1956, which is where a lot of these venues came from, and they're also hosting the Winter Olympics for the second time four years from now in 2026. Hmm. So these were all still in operation? Right. Usually the the, the things survive for a while afterward. Well, usually they survive for like maybe a year and then just Yeah, depending on where they're built, yeah. I, I think Sochi is a ghost town, but yeah. um, there's a lot of them that actually s- stick around for a while. When they get to the ice rink, Bond sees B.B. Dahl, an American figure skater played by Lynn Holly Johnson. Also watching her skate is her sponsor, Aristotle Christados, the Greek contact played by Julian Glover. Bond and Luigi take a seat with Christados and watch the end of B.B.'s set. Aristotle refers to her as his protege and assumes she will win a gold medal for him one day. In another insert, we see Locke is here too, watching the program, and probably watching this whole meeting take place. Bibi and her trainer, Jacoba Brink, approach the edge of the rink for an introduction. Bibi is tired of training, but Jacoba drags her back out onto the ice, and their relationship is reminiscent of the one between Lee Remick and Amy Irving in the competition last year. Mm-hmm. She refers to Aristotle as Uncle Ari and asks him to set her up with Bond on a date to see the biathlon later. Bond is reluctant, but Aristotle insists he would like her accompanied. He tells her that he's staying at the Miramonte and she's ecstatic. They share a photo of Locke with Christados, and he recognizes him as Milos Colombo's right-hand man. Colombo is known in some circles as the Dove and engages in all sorts of illegal operations all over the world. Apparently, he and Christados were once like brothers, and they had a falling out. Luigi confirms for Bond that the Dove has the equipment needed to salvage the St. George's if he gets there first. Do you guys recall the last time our protagonist 
was in a race with the Russians to recover a MacGuffin from a sunken ship? Yes. What raise, was that? Raise the Titanic? That's correct. As they walk together, is Bond... It, is it technically a MacGuffin if they name it? It's a MacGuffin if you don't know how it works. And it's yeah. the goal of the film. But it's... The attack is definitely... Yeah, but MacGuffin. I wouldn't have called the... Unobtainium. Uh, no, yeah, the uranium-esque element that is... But it's not a real nuclear. thing. It's like a... Oh, we don't know how it works, but you're going to use it to build a magical thing. Uh, I guess, but it was just a, a radioactive element. It wasn't just radioactive, though. It had all sorts of bizarre properties. They were oh. going to build a giant shield with it, they claimed. Yeah, I guess. As they walk together, Bond spots Melina in town, no doubt on the hunt for the man who wanted her folks dead. Bond follows her alone, but we pan sideways to two motorcycles with spike tires for snowy terrain. Melina has stopped at a sporting goods store, and Bond sees her purchase another heavy crossbow because she left one behind outside Gonzalez's compound. He listens close enough to hear her order it delivered to the Hotel Cristallo. As she steps outside, he pops into a neighboring flower shop, and the shop girl is concerned when he's blocking the door and staring outside until he orders a dozen lilies. Bond notices the motorcycles rev up and blasts straight for Melina. The first bike barely misses her, and Bond clotheslines the second biker with a striped board from fencing around a construction site. When they come back for a second pass, Bond sends one of the bikers through the front window of the flower shop. When the shop girl sees Bond approach to check on the man, she offers him the dozen lilies he ordered. Send them to the funeral, will you? The actress playing the shop girl in this scene, Robin Young, actually won her part in a contest in Playboy magazine. <laughs> okay. This was only half the prize, the other half being a spread in the magazine. But from this appearance, she landed roles in The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas and Night Shift, so I think things worked out all right for this lady. Yeah. I like one of those other movies. Yeah. Playboy. <laughs> what? 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 <laughs> Melina tries to sneak away, and Bond follows her away, asking how she ended up here. She claims to have received a telegram from Bond saying that he planned to meet up with the money man here today. So why did you just try to leave me? It looks like you're avoiding me, and yet you came here to meet with me and the guy that you want to kill? It's just weird that she tried to sneak away. The two hop into a horse-drawn sleigh to continue their chat. Bond convinces Melina to lay low for a while, pointing to all the evidence that she is in crosshairs now. The door to Bond's hotel room suddenly has a Do Not Disturb tag, and he sneaks carefully inside with his gun in his hands. We can hear the shower running, and he puts the gun away when B.B. Doll comes scampering out of his bathroom wrapped in a towel. She hops under the covers of his bed and removes the towel. Evidently, she bribed a porter to let her in and offers her body to Bond, who refuses it because she's a tad young for him. Yes, well, you get your clothes on, and I'll buy you an ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> We cut to Locke, arriving at the biathlon, and then we see Bibi and Bond playfully downhill skiing together, intentionally kicking up snow in each other's faces. When they reach the biathlon, Bibi tries several times to shout to a competing Olympian, Eric Kriegler, but he just stares coldly back at her. And apparently they're in some kind of relationship? She and Eric? I feel like they, like, like... I don't get that impression at all. I think, okay. I think it's just another obsession she has, like yeah. Bond. I do appreciate, though, that Bond refuses her throughout this film like yeah, it, feel, it feels well, no i don't think that's an of course no bond is kind of uh, he's he's had issues in the past for sure yeah, yeah but never isn't there a scene where like uh 
cue or somebody finds like a girl in his closet that's clearly like a like teenaged in one of the james bond movies i remember there was just a situation once where there was a girl that was really really young i mean how young is they don't say how old she is do you doll's supposed to be 16 she's supposed to be 16 okay but like i don't know i just i just appreciate that he pushes her off because i feel like that generally the character of bond wouldn't right i think they wanted to acknowledge that bond is aging in a way and this was how they chose to do that because you know we're we're closing in on 20 years of this franchise and so i mean roger moore is older than sean connery so yeah he's technically aging faster than a regular person (laughs) so um yeah i think they they just wanted to point out hey we know that he's kind of an old guy and it's weird that he's with all these young girls now yeah like connery was like 33 when he started playing bond right and roger moore was 46 when he started Started. (laughs) it's also important to note that lynn holly johnson is a skater right she's doing all of her own skating in Mm -hmm. this film yeah bond bids bb adieu and starts skiing off to an appointment i don't know what appointment i'm bothered by the mixture of skis in this movie Yes, because he's he's on downhill skis. Yeah, Bond Bond is on downhill skis, and the other guy is on cross country skis. Right. And well, that's because he's he was just doing the biathlon. Yeah. Right, but they're treating them like these things work the same way. I don't think they are. I mean, they they seem to work the same way on screen, but we'll we'll come back to it a little bit later. But I I think that the only reason that James Bond is able to outrun him for a lot of this chase that's coming up is because he's on downhill skis yeah and this olympian is screwed because he's in cross-country skis okay sure maybe and then i'm over here doing the mr incredible meme skis are skis (laughs) (laughs) why did they change skis (laughs) but along the way we see eric take aim at him with his rifle a deadly aim if his olympic effort was any indication two more snow bikers appear and now three people are chasing bond with guns a 53-year-old Roger Moore is capable of outrunning an Olympian and two guys on motorcycles for a surprisingly long time. Do we, do we call it outrunning when it's outgliding? Outsliding? Okay. Outsliding. <laughs> Outstanding. Outmaneuvering. Bond sneaks with a crowd into an enclosed standing room only ski lift, but Locke and a henchman named Klaus, played by Charles Dance, yeah. managed to sneak into the same car at the last second. Though, confusingly for the other passengers, without skis. <laughs> or if they have them, they're cross-country skis on this thing that's leading to a, a ramp. That well, the, would not... these guys don't have cross-country oh, skis. Oh, because they were on the motorcycles? Yeah, yeah so yeah. They, they literally pulled up in a car and got out just before we got into this elevator. So these aren't even the motorcycle guys. Oh, okay. And, and a lot of, uh, I, I want to bring up the score because a lot of the the music, the synthy music in this chase, yeah, I was like, I feel like I'm playing Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a very video game esque chase music. Yeah, the group from the ski lift head to the top of a long jump slope, and Bond notices Locke is wearing a pin with a dove on it. From the top of the slope, Bond sees Eric and the bikers waiting below. Eric takes aim from a car, but Bond heads down the hill just as the instructor is trying to tell him. You have the wrong skis on for a long jump. You need to have, because the heel is supposed to separate from the ski. Oh, are there? I didn't realize there were special long jump skis too. Yeah. Also, it just seems like they just let anyone long jump. It seems like you'd have to fill out forms or something like before you. Yeah, there should be a liability involved. Yeah. From the top of the slope, Bond sees Eric and the bikers waiting below. Eric takes aim from the car, but Bond heads down the hill 
and Klaus quickly pops in from the side of the slope, and the two are fighting the whole way down. They jump at the ramp, and Bond shoves Klaus hard into the snow, and then shoots right over Eric's car to avoid getting shot, clipping a bit of decorative ribbon on his way off the course. <laughs> Sound effect. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, an early draft of this chase involved snowmobiles, but I like the motorcycles better. Yeah. They, but the motorcycles have, like, spiked tires. Right, yeah. and and they go, I think they go faster than a snowmobile would, but it's also just something you don't see in every ski chase. Like, there's always a snowmobile. Yeah. I, th- I think this is, makes it different and fun. We also learned that these bikes are outfitted with guns attached to the handlebars. <laughs> I don't know why they don't, like, the bikers don't have guns. The bikes have guns. <laughs> so you can only shoot in the direction that you're steering. Mm-hmm. Again, Bond keeps well ahead of them and takes a few shortcuts to throw them off, including skiing down the middle of a loaded dining table of food on the deck of an alpine lodge. Speaking of lodges, Bond lodges a ski pole (laughs) at about head height between two trees and successfully knocks one of the bikers off his steed. We cut from the chase in progress. Wait, doesn't... I feel like that gag happens in a MacGyver episode too, doesn't it? There is an episode called uh, I think it's called Out in the Cold. The one where he does the the the, the avalanche one, right? Like, doesn't doesn't he yeah, get that's, chased? That's Out in the Cold, and uh, in that episode, there's a there's a microfish rolled up in one of the ski poles. Oh, right, right, right. So maybe he doesn't leave the pole behind. For some reason, yeah. I thought he he clotheslines somebody with a ski pole. I don't believe so. Okay, never mind. We cut from the chase in progress to a bobsled team just starting their run down a track. Bond manages to ski right onto the bobsled track behind the sled, and the surviving motorcycle follows him onto the track as well. If the scene looks incredibly dangerous, that's because it was. In fact, an accident at one of the track's sharper turns would prove fatal for 23-year-old stuntman Paolo Rigoni when he became trapped under the bobsled. Oh my it, god. It flipped in the track, and he was killed. Oh, so, so it was just the bobsled by itself that yep. caused the accident? Because I am horrified by the fact that they let those let, well, they let a skier on there and that they let motorcycles on there. Under these low overhead things. And yeah. they're all on there at once. Mm-hmm. And like, it's, it's terrifying. It's like, what if that bike spins out, it would potentially slip down and, and plow down everybody in front of it. Yep. And I don't know. God, this seems like a really bad idea. Shortly after the accident on set, a bobsledder was killed in another accident on the same turn, at which point the track was modified. So it was really a problem of the original bobsled track that caused both of those deaths. Next, we see Bond shoot off the side of the track, presumably on purpose, but he clips a ski on a pile of firewood in the snow and is sent tumbling down the hill. And all of his rings shoot out and everything. (laughs) One of the bikers also eats it close behind Bond, and when he removes his helmet, we see that it's Eric Kriegler again on this motorcycle. He starts to raise his rifle, but the barrel looks like a fucking crazy straw after the crash, (laughs) so he just throws it into the snow. (laughs) Next, he lifts his entire motorcycle into the air and tosses it down the mountain after the escaping Bond, our first hint of Eric's insane super strength, possibly as a result of doping for the Olympics. That night, Bond takes the Lotus to the ice rink again to check on BB's practice. He leaves Luigi in the car and advises him not to test any switches in there. Unfortunately, he flips one. The strangle switch. No, that's not true. <laughs> it's one of those seat belts where it, it, yeah. it, it, <laughs> it just keeps going. It goes the whole way around the door several times. <laughs> For the whole next scene, I just wanted for the car to suddenly explode <laughs> in the background and for Bond to just go, pity. 
Bond asks Bibi about her boyfriend, Eric. She accuses Bond of being jealous, but eventually reveals that Eric is an East German defector. Miss Jacoba Brink urges her out of the rink as a team of hockey players move onto the ice. When the girls abandon Bond, the lights go out and the hockey team turns on him. They rough him up good on the ice, but eventually he gets one of their hockey sticks away and knocks one of them into their own goal, triggering the scoreboard. He grabs another player by the skate and tosses him into the goal as well for a second point. For the third guy, arguably the dumbest of the bunch, Bond hops into the Zamboni, which was apparently just parked on the ice with the keys in it, mm -hmm. which I would guess they don't do, and he drives it across the rink until hench number three just crashes into it skating full speed and is knocked back into the goal for a hat trick. We could have gotten a really gruesome death, too, with the Zamboni. Yeah. Just leaving a trail of blood behind yeah. it freezing it to the rink <laughs> he just writes lol in blood <laughs> that, that wouldn't have made sense in 81 when a wider shot of this kill it would have looked like austin powers in the steamroller <laughs> running yeah. over michael mcdonald when bond returns to the parking lot he finds luigi all tuckered out in the car and by tuckered out i mean dead looks like strangled bond checks the man's pulse and finds nothing but notices that his other hand is balled up around a dove pin a clue to the killer. Unless the killer planted it here, we'll see. We cut to a bay on the Greek island of Corfu, and Bond surprises Melina as she steps from a boat to the dock. Apparently, he got word that she was arriving here today. They head to the marketplace together. The production lobbied hard to shoot a scene at the Parthenon, but were refused by the Greek government. We do see a bit of ancient Greek architecture here, so I assume that this is where that scene might have gone, but it doesn't appear. Bond asks Melina if her father may have located any clues as to the ATAC's whereabouts, and she confesses that she hasn't summoned the courage to go through his office yet. We cut to the Achillean Palace, a Corfu casino, because what choice do we have in a Bond movie? We have to show him at a table playing a game at some point. Playing Baccarat, specifically. Well, sort of. It's a version of Baccarat. We cut to a table where a group, including Bond, are playing chemin de fer which is basically a version of baccarat where the money comes from the players betting against each other instead of against the house mm. bond is acting as the banker and wagers a million drachmas or about fifty thousand in today's dollars across the table a man named bunky who seems to be rocking a glass eye matches only half of bond's wager as banker bond withdraws all the cards from the shoe himself and the croupier delivers them around the table when he turns over his first two cards, Bunky has eight. In response, Bond turns over his cards to reveal five. I think the implication of the first hand is that Bunky has won, but I don't know the rules that well. Well, he, Bond has the opportunity to draw. and it, It's just like blackjack in that you can draw and you can bust. But this hand is over already. No, not yet, because no. Bond hasn't yes. had it. This hand is over. There's, they, they play two hands against each other. He wins the first one. I think Bunky won the first one. Because everyone, all the chips are handed out mm -hmm. after he flips over the five. So I think Bunky won the first hand. Okay. Bond puts another million on the table, and again, Bunky matches half. But the Contessa behind Bunky bullies him into matching Bond's full million drachmas. In the second hand, Bunky announces, without turning his cards in, that they total four. But bizarrely, when Bond turns over his hand this round, it's the exact same five of diamonds and queen of spades as in the previous hand. But we see him draw them from the shoe again and then okay. flip them over. Maybe that's where I get confused then. Yeah, I think it's an editing mistake. It's either an editing mistake or proof that Bond is cheating at this game. 
Bond draws a third card for Bunky, who seems pleased by it. Christatos approaches the table and warns Bond that drawing again defies the odds, but Bond disregards the warning. The odds favor standing pat. If you play the odds. Which I feel like is the origin of the... <laughs> I suggest you hit, sir. I also like to live dangerously. As you wish, sir. 20 beats your 5. I'm sorry, sir. Bond draws again, a 4, bringing his total to 9 and winning him the 2 million drachma pot. Bunky is shaken, but not stirred, and the Contessa abandons him silently. Bond quickly cashes out to join Christados for dinner. Christados confides that he has deduced Bond is here representing the British Narcotics Board, intending to take down Columbo's heroin ring, and again warns him. Christados suggests killing Columbo might be less of a hassle than arresting him, considering how powerful his friends are. He points out Columbo at the next table over, sitting with the Contessa that lured Bunky to his doom. He's wearing dove cufflinks. Somewhat needlessly, we see a maitre d' instruct a server to replace the candle on Bond's table, but when we follow the first candle upstairs into Columbo's office, we learn that it was actually a recording device and captured Bond's entire chat with Christados just now. Columbo listens to the tape and eventually returns to the party. He makes a muted comment to the Contessa, who leaves in disgust, but not before tossing a drink in his face. Christados assumes that this little scene was a charade and a trap, but Bond can't pass up the opportunity to fuck a countess and <laughs> follows her to the coat check to offer her a ride home. When she says she'll take a taxi, he calls her chicken, the same way she did to Bunky earlier, and they leave together. Well, you look like a gentleman. Why not? As they leave, we get a reveal that Melina is actually sitting right here behind them at a craps table and turns to watch them leave with a sociopathic stare. In the car, on their way home, the Countess introduces herself as Countess Lysel von Schlaff, and Bond claims that he's an author writing about Greek smugglers, but using his real name, James Bond, as per usual. You should have been writing about birds. Yeah, I'm writing about birds of the East Indies now. They arrive at the Countess's beachside villa in the black of night. She invites him in for a drink and a snack, and Bond sends the chauffeur back to the casino for Christados, certain he's just been invited to stay the night. They enjoy a bit of what seems to be post-coital champagne. Suddenly, the Countess is using her real voice and admits that she's from Liverpool. She also confesses that Columbo's muted comment to her was in order to take Bond home and learn about him. And have you? Have I ever? She leans forward to make out with him some more, and we get a rare bit of nudity outside the Maurice Binder portion yeah. when one of her breasts just falls out of her nightie. We cut to the next morning as a team of divers are jumping off of a raft. Just don't even worry about them. Don't think about those guys. They don't, they don't matter to this scene. Bond and the Countess walk along the beach and share a brief kiss when Locke appears over a hill in a dune buggy. I, well, first of all, I, I hate the fact that they're just like sharing a romantic walk along the beach. It's like, no, Bond, you got shit to do. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? I, and like he keeps up every appointment that he makes with these women. Like he's like, yeah, BB, I'll come and check by after practice. And it's like, you don't have time for this. Why, <laughs> why did you actually go back that Luigi is dead because you went to go flirt with the 16 year old? The dune buggy guns it right for them and they run for the peak of a nearby hill where a second buggy comes over the top toward them. Bond shoots out a tire on the second buggy and sends it rolling down some rocks. Liesel makes an ill-advised run for it down a straightaway of flat beach and Locke is hot on her trail. Bond shoots at him, 
but doesn't slow the buggy, and Locke catches her full speed with the hood, dropping her body in the sand. It's a pretty crazy stunt because it's it's clear it's actually I like frame by framed it. It's a it's a female stunt woman mm-hmm. getting hit by this buggy moving at a decent pace nice. and she flips over the hood of it. It's crazy. Bond narrowly dives out of a third buggy's path with an enraged look on his face, but quickly finds himself at the end of Klaus's gun. Klaus walks Bond to Locke's buggy, but just as he orders Bond into the vehicle, he's hit in the spine with what sounds like a crossbow bolt. But when he falls forward, it's actually a metal spear from a spear gun. Locke drives off, and Bond rushes to check on the Countess until he realizes it was not Molina who saved him, but the team of divers we saw getting out of the raft earlier. I don't know why they had to show them getting out of the raft. I would have believed that these people were, like, under the Mm -hmm. water. They all have Dove logos on their wetsuits. Just as he tries to question them, one diver knocks him unconscious, and we cut to the interior of a ship as Bond is coming to. A man enters the room and tosses clothes to him before marching him at gunpoint to meet with Columbo in his office. Columbo holds up the 1981 equivalent of a talk boy and plays a snippet for Bond. Hi, kids, we're home early. (laughs) I'm just kidding, it says. Stop drooling on me. But not that either. It's the incriminating bit from the casino. You may have to kill him. Does this discourage you? Columbo reveals to Bond here that basically everything that Christados told him about Columbo was actually about himself, though they are both smugglers. Locke is an employee of Christados, not him. Bond takes a moment to believe these words, but he should know it's true because Christados' chauffeur from the night before was one of the three dune buggy drivers on the beach just now. Also, uh, this guy just saved his life. Right. Columbo further explains that Christados has been working as a double agent even since World War II. Christados tried to trick Bond into killing Columbo for knowing too much about his own operations, and also for being a competing smuggler, probably, though Columbo claims not to deal in heroin. So the white dove in the hand of uh, Luigi? What's his name? Luigi was planted. Luigi. It was a plant. <laughs> yep. Okay. To incriminate Columbo. And Locke wearing it. Because Locke was wearing, has been wearing it consistently. On the skis, yeah. To prove what he says, he plans a trip to Christados' warehouse in Albania. He offers Bond a drink, but Bond is reticent to accept it. So Columbo offers him a loaded gun. And now Bond seems convinced. He at least accepts the drink now. Well, yeah. He, he, he gives him the gun, and Bond isn't so stupid to not check that the yeah. gun is loaded. Yeah. So I realize that this entire scene is supposed to be taking place on a ship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the camera work is doing that thing where it's like... Sort of tips back it's, and forth. It's like counter-angling like right, as right. if the boat is tilting. But I'm like, if there was a camera on a tripod on a boat, you wouldn't notice it because it would right. be tilting with the room. So this is only here to make me feel sick to my stomach. That's true. That's <laughs> what they wanted. Uh, yeah. I mean, you should watch uh, From Russia with Love. There's lots of scenes on a boat. And then the camera's doing this. It's so exaggerated. Just just so you know, Richard just uh, was waving his arms back and forth in yeah. the air. Yeah. <laughs> All the scenes with Blofeld, because Blofeld's on the, in Firm Russia with Love, anyway. That's just because they want you to feel disoriented when he's on screen. Early the next morning, Columbo's yacht floats silently into the Albanian harbor, just as teams are packing it with materials. The yacht goes unnoticed until it's right alongside Christados' ship, and a battle ensues. Do you guys recall the last time we saw Roger Moore tossing people off boats in a covert ship takeover? I'm going to say folks. I thought you would say sea wolves, but it, it is folks because yeah. he never went on the boat in sea wolves. 
but in Folks, he ended up tossing one of his own men overboard by mistake. That's true. Bond jumps over a ledge to the deck of the ship and lands right beside Columbo, and the two men breathe a sigh of relief after not shooting each other. <laughs> like, they both have their guns drawn, and they're like, <sighs> Technically, it wasn't throwing him over by mistake. He intentionally threw him over. I thought he, th- he thought it was one of the, the no. people who had taken the boat. One of the, oh, the other guy the thought other guy he, thought was, thought he guy. was a bad guy, right. so he threw his own man over just to be like, I'll deal with you later. It was by mistake, but it was by the other guy's mistake. Okay, sure. <laughs> Locke whips two massive rifles out of a box and just starts spraying down the attacking pirates. It looks like most of what they're smuggling is just massive rolls of butcher paper. Bond rolls one down a ramp to take out the last guard outside the warehouse, and then the team storms inside. There's a lot of wild shooting happening from both sides in this room, but we get a quick shot of two sea mines in the building, which is a tad dangerous. Yeah, I don't think that I would be spraying bullets all over this yeah, place. Yeah, neither team should be shooting, but definitely not the team that knows what's in here. But yeah. also, whatever those things are, I don't think, like, it looks like rolls of packing paper, but I think they're right. tanks yeah. of liquid that yeah. is explosive. No, I think it, I think they're... No? It's, it's raw opium. Opium, yeah, okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll come to them. Is opium explosive? No. Okay. I mean, it's great though. <laughs> Once you pop, <laughs> it the explodes fun don't in your stop. mouth. <laughs> it's like a party in my mouth. Bond and Columbo pass a high-tech diving suit called a gym suit, named after diver Jim Jarrett, hanging from the ceiling, but seem to instantly dismiss it as for sure not one of the bad guys. But I was just waiting for this thing to eventually come to life at the end of yeah. the scene. It doesn't happen. Columbo tosses a handful of nuts across the floor of the ship so that they'll hear anyone trying to sneak through. Okay, so that that reminds me. So Columbo says something about dealing with nuts. Yeah. And he has nuts all the time. It's and part he, of what he smuggles. He uses yeah. them here. I was waiting for this to connect back to the fact that she brought pistachios to the bird at the beginning of the movie. I'm like, oh, has she been part of this the whole time? In that she bought pistachios from someone who he sold them to no but i thought she had pistachios because she was connected that would make sense to connect them to each other but it doesn't seem to be a direct connection they notice something dripping out of the bullet holes in these paper rolls and it turns out they're huge canisters containing what they can both apparently recognize by taste as raw (laughs) opium like oh yep i know this (laughs) brings back memories they hear one of the nuts crack and shoot through the ropes holding up the pyramid of opium barrels. The whole stack runs right over a pile of henchmen. Bond tells Columbo to get his men back on the boat, but first they have to deal with an armed guard watching the warehouse exit with an automatic rifle. Sorry, I just just wanted one of those guards to say, they always told me opium would kill me. (laughs) (laughs) Bond decides on a grenade to handle the guy outside, and when the baddie tries to pick it up and throw it back, it explodes right before he can reach it. Bond follows Locke into the parking lot, but Locke detonates the sea mines, destroying the entire warehouse, and presumably a huge shipment of raw opium, unless they're already considering it a loss. But that town must have gotten so high that night, (laughs) all this opium burning around him. (laughs) Now, wouldn't wouldn't that also destroy that special diving suit? Yes, it would. So yes, it presumably definitely would they have. must have had two of them in I different guess. locations. Yeah. It just seems like a waste because they weren't even trying to steal the stuff from the warehouse. Yeah. Well, I think I think Columbo's intention was always to destroy the warehouse. Yeah, maybe. But it makes no sense for them 
to destroy themselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not even not even to take out these guys. Like the the loss. Yeah, it's like in Sea Wolves when we were like, <laughs> like, oh, the bad guys are going to come and take this ship. Let's put bombs all over our own ship. So if they try and sink the ship, yeah. we'll blow it up first. I was like, what? Why? I also think it was confusing plot wise to include sea mines because then. Now I, I'm questioning whether or not that initial sea mine was an accident. I think it definitely was on purpose. It was definitely on purpose. Yeah. But I also think they're very cinematic and fun. Those giant spheres with so little spikes So you're on. saying that these guys also put that mine there intentionally. That sunk the St. George's, yes. And they knew that that ship, because that ship was like posing as just I mean, a, I don't think they were aiming for that specific ship, but I think these guys are in charge of keeping those waters free of allied forces. Okay. And so they put that, they put those mines there on purpose. Bond chases Locke's car on foot, making use of footpaths and tunnels to catch up, and fires on the car multiple times. The bullets bounce right off the window, but shatter the taillight. Bond races up a stone stairway while Locke's car traverses very narrow paths. Inexplicably, Bond stands on the road and fires a single bullet at the windshield, which probably should have bounced off like all the others, but instead it breaks through the window into Locke's shoulder and he veers off the road. The car teeters on the lip of a cliff, and Bond approaches with the bogus dove pin. You left this with Ferrara, I believe. He tosses it into the car, and despite being tiny, the pin is enough to adjust the balance of the car, but Bond still gives it a good kick off the cliff. Apparently this was a very long discussion on set because Roger Moore thought this was dark yeah. for the oh, character yeah. to do. I, it, it, feel, it felt very unbond-like to me. Well, it doesn't feel unbond-like. I would say it feels very un-Roger Moore Bond-like. Mm. But this is something that Sean Connery would do without blinking in any given movie. Like, there was a scene in Doctor No where a guy busts in and tries to shoot him in bed, but it's a dummy. But the guy unloads his whole gun. So then Sean Connery pops out and shoots the guy once. But when they shot it, he shoots the dead guy five more times because he's like, I want to shoot as many times as you did. Oh. <laughs> Which is, like, way darker than the character needed to be. But also... uh in the spy who loved me the the villain death on that is particularly dark yeah uh because it's an one it's an old man and the old man tries to kill bond and misses with a single harpoon so bond just walks up to him unloading his gun completely at this old guy yeah and it's just like across the table yeah yeah it's like oh my god uh like just like one shot would have been enough yeah but he just goes crazy so this this isn't like outside of the Roger Moore possibilities of darkness. Yeah. But, but but he had become known as like kind of the Bond clown sort of. And yeah. now suddenly he's doing these really terrible things. And then in the next movie, he's literally dressed as a clown. Yeah, I was, was going to say, <laughs> he's literally a clown and octopusy. We cut to the exploring of an underwater archaeological find. Melina is here with a huge pipe vacuuming up sand and clearing a beautiful tile flooring. Suddenly, Bond reappears right in front of her, also in a full diving suit. The reason these shots look so clean is because the actors are not underwater. Yeah. They're just being blasted with fans, and they increase the frames per second of the shoot to slow down the footage a bit. For extra realism, bubbles were comped over their breathing equipment, and I think it sells the effect really well. I was very impressed with how it looked. No. (laughs) If you're looking for it, it doesn't look good. But if you're not looking for it, you wouldn't notice that this was going on. They had to shoot them this way because they discovered on set that Carol Bouquet had a sinus issue that prevented her from being able to remain underwater even with scuba gear. Both actors are also standing in the projection of an underwater shimmering effect, and I think the whole thing sells really well. 
I didn't know. Yeah. It looks great. Richard's being unfair. Yeah, I disagree. It looks great. <laughs> <laughs> now I got to go rewatch it. To each, you're fascinating. wrong. For some reason, Melina takes off her air tank and leaves it here at the dig site. <laughs> yeah, so this is <laughs> this is really weird. And I was like, I, I made a mental note of this because I'm like, why on earth would you do this? Just so I know where it is. It's very common practice to leave your scuba gear underwater. No. <laughs> no, it's not. Like, no. y- you, if you if you did a very, very deep dive... And you had to do a staged resurfacing where you would you would have tanks at various levels, like tied to you know like a rope ladder or something like that. You would have places to stop that would have different tanks. But aside from that, no, you would not just leave your tank at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, they make it look like she just left it on her desk at work. And, like, and I get, I'll just come back to it later. I get that this might be a fairly shallow area that she could resurface and probably get back down to, like, just skin diving or whatever. But the, still, but you don't know when are you coming back for that. That's yeah. weird. Yeah, uh, An easy fix would have just been to have, like, spare tanks down there. Like, like so, like... So she doesn't have to resurface. She could just like hook onto another tank. Exactly. If you're there for an extended period of time because you're doing the archaeological dig, I imagine that th- that seems reasonable to me. Yeah. Have spare gear down there. But like, that's just weird to take your whole, you know, BC off with your tank and leave it at the bottom yeah. of the ocean. Very strange. It, when it happened, though, I don't think I questioned it until it comes back and I was like, why does she do that? <laughs> Unless she knew this was going to happen. Oh, I questioned it immediately. I'm like, this has to come back because otherwise, why would you do that? <laughs> yeah. Together, they swim up to Triana, her parents' yacht, where Bond informs her that Christados was the money man behind Gonzalez. They consult her father's logs for some idea of where to look for the ATAC, and Melina notes that her father logged a diving bell sighting during a survey in their two-person submersible, Neptune. Three days later, the log mentions a wreck in the same area. What happened to Jacqueline? She didn't really love me. Bond and Melina take Neptune down and locate the St. George's. They put on deep sea diving equipment and head into the wreck. On the surface above, Christados detects their arrival. Apparently they didn't notice that his ship was right above the wreckage. Mm This whole, uh, I'm going to go down to very far depths in a submersible and then come out in diving gear? Yeah. That's not a thing. No. I mean, it is in Goliath the Weights. Uh, unless they've been pressurized. They have to repressurize yeah, right. Well, like, now, submarines, and maybe I'm wrong. Like, I'm not a, a, a submersible expert here. But I know that submarines have, like, the ability to have a sectioned off area where you essentially can, you know, match the outside pressure you know you basically fill it with water and put on gear and it's your it's your escape hatch yeah but that i i think that that's just for escaping i don't think that you can then come in repressurize it to match the I mean, other this might work I, differently because the whole point of it is for treasure hunting like that's what I they guess. use it for but like treasure hunting i would imagine in a way that you would take you know other submersibles out that have like little ar- grabby arms on them mm-hmm. and, and go look for stuff you don't Get out when you're on the bottom of the ocean. I don't know. I won't go underwater ever again anyway. Ever again? When was the last time you went under? I accidentally dipped my head under the water in a pool once. (laughs) But never again. Because they're like significantly far down, right? Yeah, they're like, I think they were like four to 500 feet. I think they were like 500 feet. Are they really that far down? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it said that they were at 500 feet, which is, is, 
significant to the point where even if you came out, like there is a significant pressure difference where you have to do that controlled ascent. Mm-hmm. And they're not in like airtight diving suits either. I no. think the girl's hands are. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just like this helmet thing yeah. that they're wearing. And I don't even understand how that's supposed to work. Yeah. Just as they begin to enter the ship, a shark shoves past them on its way out. Inside, they find the bodies of the crew surprisingly well-preserved, especially considering a shark just swam out of this ship. They locate the ATAC and find that it was set to self-destruct but never activated. Bond disconnects the device from the explosive panel, but they're interrupted by a man in the gym suit. He tears off Molina's air tube. Bond drags her out of the ship and suction cups the explosive charge from the self-destruct device to the gym suit. Bond manages to wrestle the ATAC machine loose from the baddie and escape the ship before he explodes. Why not leave it with the guy that's about to explode so that it explodes? Because then this movie's only like 90 minutes long and that's weird. <laughs> well, yeah, and also we mentioned earlier that that they would have to reprogram their whole... Well, they wouldn't have to if it, if it were destroyed. If it got destroyed, explosion. that would have been the intention of the original guy. Yeah, he should have just nobody been like, would've... oh, nobody hit self-destruct. Beep. Let's go. No, yeah. but but I think I think it's to be destroyed so it doesn't fall into enemy hands. Right. And but so they wouldn't have to reprogram anything. They would just build a new ATAC machine. Right. Well, they they would have to do that. But if they don't have to do that, recover. But do you, did you watch the whole movie? Do you know? No. You know well, what happens? We, yeah, no, I know what happens. But I'm just saying his orders are to recover it. Right. But at the very least, what what should have happened was it should have been destroyed when the ship sank. Correct. So it would it would benefit. Like nobody would have cared then. Like I don't think that they have to start over with a new system if one box gets blown up. Yeah. I think it just means it's like if if I lost my house key, I would be worried about someone finding it. But if I destroy it, all I have to do is go get another house key. Right. I don't have to change uh, I, my keys. I, I, I'm not disputing any of this. I'm just saying his orders were to recover it. Right. And so he's followed But he orders. was also ordered to torture Gonzalez and then he let him just get... S- Oh, he let him. <laughs> he he let him die. He could have taken that crossbow bolt, or he could have gotten him out of the water and given him mouth to mouth. Yeah, but Bond don't do that. No. <laughs> the charge goes off behind them, killing Cristado's man, and Bond and Molina get back into the Neptune. Molina is very nearly drowned before Bond gets her out of the water. Suddenly, the Neptune is attacked by one of Cristado's submersibles, and it starts tearing the ship apart with its metal claws. The Neptune barely escapes before it's completely destroyed by jamming the other sub into the open hole in the side of the St. George's. It rushes back to the Triana. Do on you the- recall the last time we had a submersible stuck on a uh, underwater ship? I don't Raise know. Raise the Titanic? <laughs> was that it? Yeah. Uh, I was actually pretty impressed by this part. of like With the two submersibles fighting? Yeah, because I was like, oh man, this is like out of the abyss. Yeah. But- uh, you know that abyss wouldn't be for another eight years. It also reminded me of uh, when the lunar lander is getting destroyed in Superman Two, mm. and the guy's inside of it, and it's just like crunching shut around him. But like when they get inside, I'm gonna really, I'm really bothered by this getting in and out of a submersible no, at 500 no. feet. When they get in, they're just like instantly like oh, took off my gear. But I'm like, you would have to pump all that water out of there and equal the pressure that you had. When you started this, that takes time. Yeah. Well, and and to your point, they make a point about saying that they have to use an oxygen helium mix because they're down so deep. Yeah. Um, 
so that only adds to like the fact that they they shouldn't be able to be pressurized and decompress compress yep decompress this quickly well just in the same way that it, if the submersible if the interior of the submersible were at the pressure that it was at the surface mm-hmm. presumably it'd stay that way when you get out of it well when you, you go back when you go back in and you have to repressurize. repressurize, it should take the same amount of time as a controlled ascent, which when you're 500 feet down has got to be like 15, 20, maybe 30 minutes. Yeah. By the way, the exact number was 584. So it's almost 600 feet. That's crazy. Yeah, well, it's it's supposed to be like... It doesn't look like they're that low because it's so well lit. Mm-hmm. But I guess that is. Yeah. It's just clear water, I guess. On the deck of Molina's ship, they are quickly caught at gunpoint by Christados and his men. Christados and Eric meet below deck and argue over how the ATAC machine will be delivered. Bond and Molina are tied together at the end of a rope connected to Christados' boat. They are yanked overboard by the rope and dragged through a coral reef to draw blood and attract the interest of sharks. When the boat circles around to drag them through again, Bond dives down and cuts the rope binding his hands on a bit of coral. On the next dive, Bond wraps the entire rope around a large rock, so that when the slack runs out, the rope actually snaps, which I don't think would happen. I think the boat would just jerk to a stop. Uh, I mean, I guess it depends on how well secured that rope is on the other yeah. end. Well, and how thick that rope is. I mean, coral's really sharp. Yeah, uh, that's the other thing that's weird is that it's the same rope that's binding his hands that's connecting them both to this rock, right? Mm-hmm. So why did he decide that he needed to do the hands first instead of cutting the rope that's dragging them through coral first? feel like that would be the priority rope to cut but maybe they couldn't swim after that so he needed his hands i don't know the recoiling of the rope tosses a buoy out of the water and knocks one of christados's men overboard where he is quickly swarmed with sharks christados orders his crew to swing around and hit bond and molina in the water but they dive at the last second it reminds me of that scene from eraser when he's like swing around and we're gonna hit him with the plane yeah <laughs> as they're falling (laughs) luckily melina remembers that she left that oxygen tank down here and they're underwater long enough that christados is certain that they've been eaten by sharks weirdly though they both surface within sight of christados departing boat i feel like they at the very least they should be behind her boat coming up out of the water right so they're hidden from view but they're also actually bleeding and there's actually sharks in this water yeah why would the shark go for the dude that just fell in rather than the people completely under the water who are bleeding well i guess because the guy is thrashing maybe Maybe. he's he's making like the injured seal sounds yeah but i were they i guess that they must have just been really close to this i i guess i have a hard time believing because i feel like this area is really shallow because she took the tank off and was able to go to the surface Mm -hmm. right but the submersible went to 500 feet and they're so, in practically the same place. And, and they yeah. just came up out of the submersible. So I imagine... Maybe they got dragged really far just now. They got dragged all the way back to their starting point yeah. conveniently next to this air tank. Yeah. Because otherwise I'm like, how... Is there just like this dramatic shelf that dropped off and yeah. suddenly the that ship sunk at 500 feet? Or she's just a litter bug and she leaves tanks all over the bay. Yeah. <laughs> On board the ship, they get a clue from the parrot, Max, who repeats the phrase St. Cyril's, which it overheard from Eric and Christados' argument. We cut to a party in progress in a town square, and Bond moves through it to enter a church. He steps into a confessional booth, and on the other side of the partition, we see Q and a long fake beard. I think this was originally intended to be M, 
but in Bernard Lee's absence, Q makes a rare on-location appearance. He tells Bond that there's too many St. Cyril's for that to be a useful clue, and the entire scene is completely pointless. Yeah. Why did this happen at all? We could have cut right to Bond with Columbo, who he reaches out to next. Well, or even asking, you know, his lady friend, like... St. Cyril's, what's yeah, that? Yeah, and she's like, I don't know, there's a lot of them. Yeah. Columbo suspects that Christados has made a base out of an abandoned monastery called St. Cyril's, where they used to hide from the Germans during the war. The location is a real monastery called the Monastery of the Holy Trinity in Meteora, Greece. Luckily for Bond, Columbo has spent years planning an assault on this particular stronghold, even before he knew anyone was using it as a base. Yeah, I, I, I kind of like that aspect to his character, that in his spare time I was like, how would I... How would I attack that abandoned monastery? <laughs> Why? Why would you? The monastery's on the top of a very tall rock formation, and this was on purpose because women can't climb... And it prevented women from ever reaching the monastery. That was literally the logic in constructing that. Is that true, Jesse? (laughs) I'm not revealing our secrets. I've told you, you can't climb a rope. It's physically impossible. (laughs) (laughs) We cut inside the monastery to see that Bibi is here. Wait, how did she get here? And why? (laughs) Yeah, why is she here? That's a good question. Training as usual. But there's nothing to train with here. She's just like doing pirouettes in a bedroom because there's no ice skating rink. (laughs) Wait, how did she get up there if she can't climb? That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Christados enters and informs them that there's been a change of plans and they're all relocating to Cuba. (laughs) Hooray! (laughs) Cuba's famous for its ice skating. (laughs) Bibi is not interested in going to Cuba to practice for only Christados' eyes and claims that he's too old for her despite Julian Glover being eight years younger than Roger Moore. (laughs) Christados is furious at this betrayal, and after he leaves, Jacoba tries to talk some sense into her. On his way up the rock wall, Bond disturbs a nest of doves and nearly draws the attention of a guard. Like, how alert would you really be if you're out here? (laughs) You're like, all right, this is a straight cliff face that goes down 700,000 feet. Better, Better keep a sharp eye out. Just as Bond gets to the top, the same guard finds him and kicks him back down the wall. He free falls for a long time before he's caught by a safety line. It's an insane stunt because they clearly dropped a stuntman mm-hmm. hundreds of feet off of this cliff, counting on the rope to stop him. But they had to build like a special tool so that it wouldn't jerk to a sudden stop at the bottom, that it would slowly bring him to a stop. Because you would die if you just hit the bottom of that rope, even if it caught you. Oh, really? Yeah. It would just shatter your spine the second you hit it. It's like, it's like hitting a wall at the bottom. The guard begins to climb down from above and attempts to dislodge all of Bond's pitons and carabiners. In- instead of reporting yeah. this action. Or just cutting the rope, which would also work. You don't have to be like, I'm going to take all of your little pegs out of this wall. It's like, no, just cut the rope. Yeah. It'll fall through all of them. That's true. That would have been much faster. But I also feel like, I, yeah, I would have called to somebody first and then gone and dealt with it. No, it's better to do it by yourself because then you can be like, look what I did all by well, myself. because would you really think that this dude is alone? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Because I am. Because only one person would ever try to <laughs> climb up this cliff face. I mean, there are surprisingly few of them, but yes, it doesn't make sense. Every time one is broken loose, Bond drops another 20 feet until he's down to the last one. And before the baddie can break it loose, Bond throws a blade into the man's chest and he falls off the mountain. Molina is concerned at first that the body that smashes down in front of her is Bond until Columbo turns the man over. Um, 
Now he Bond uses a very interesting climbing technique on this rope, um, which is a real thing for emergencies for climbing. Yeah. Uh, where you're kind of where he takes off his shoelaces. You make like a, a foot loop. Yeah. Where you can inch your way up. Yeah, yeah. You like you actually like put your foot in and you lift yourself up with your foot on the lower loop. Yeah. Raise the other a loop up, bring the other one up, and then just keep doing that. So you can actually lift yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> I didn't know that. I but that, that's the only way to actually climb a rope. Just a yeah. saying about something that's impossible to do. And now, the, when this last piton comes out, did you notice it was like a weird, like sped up, almost like frame by frame animation of this last piton kind of going. Boop, 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 boop. Oh yeah, it it does look weird. And I was like, I mean, but my dad brought up a point. He was like, why even show it? He was already up. It's not necessary. Yeah, yeah, like like he's already safe. There was no point to show this this last piton giving way. Yeah, but we see him back up at the top of the wall, and he sneaks into the monastery from here. There's a small basket elevator in the guardhouse, and Bond uses it to bring up Molina, Colombo, and one of Colombo's men. When the other monastery guards find the guardhouse locked, they get suspicious. When one peeks over the edge to see the loaded basket coming up, he's quickly struck with a bolt from Molina's crossbow. Christados complains to Eric that General Gogol is late to the handoff. Just as they're about to enter the main building, Bond and Columbo ambush Jacoba Brink, who's decided to escape Christados' compound with Bibi to protect her from a life she doesn't want in Cuba. I like this turn for the character. Because yeah. the whole time you think she's 100% on Christados' side and that she doesn't care about Bibi, she just cares about being the greatest. But maybe she realized, like, you're not going to get solid training in Cuba. This is bullshit. We're getting the fuck out of here. <laughs> I can't or, do this to you. All she does really care about is making her a superstar, and she realizes that she can't get that in this yeah. way. <laughs> Inside, Jacoba leads them to where the guards are sleeping in the middle of the day for some reason. When BB can't find <laughs> when BB can't find Brink, she confronts Christados, who slaps her to the ground. Christados and Eric can hear Gogol's helicopter approaching. Shortly after, they hear their guards fighting with intruders and for whatever reason not announcing the intrusion to anyone, just silently fighting. <laughs> Do you recall the last time we had guards sleeping in the middle of the day? Oof. Oh, damn it. I know exactly what you're talking We've about. We've already mentioned it once today. I was wrong about it. Guards sleeping in the was middle of the day. Was it Cabo Blanco? No, she said we mentioned it. Oh. But weren't there guards sleeping in the middle of the day, like when they sneaks into that... I think that was very early morning. You're talking about yeah. the fully nude guard yeah. <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> um, guards were sleeping in the middle of the day. I do remember something like this, and it was ludicrous that they were asleep. What was it? At high risk? They were they were taking their siesta? Yes, that's right. Mm. That, and they specifically <laughs> timed their invasion for the siesta hour. <laughs> Bond and a guard come crashing through a stained glass window into Cristado's office, and Eric quickly gets a gun to his head. Bibi shoves Eric away, and Eric slaps her completely across the room. Bond tries to avenge her, but his punches are ineffective, and Eric capably tosses Bond around the room. I'd read somewhere, I forget where now, that in an early draft of the script, they were going to use a third consecutive appearance for Richard Keel's Jaws character yeah. from Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. And I wouldn't be surprised if they dropped Jaws from the story and replaced him with Eric. Because he doesn't talk, really. Mm -hmm. He's super strong and he's huge. It's like, I would believe it if they put Jaws in here and he were competing in a biathlon. Like, sure, whatever. But, but Jaws and Bond parted on a friendly note. That's and true. So that, I, I, that would kind of mess up the character a little bit. Yeah. That'd be cool if he was on their team for this one. Yeah. 
While Bond and Eric fight, Christados receives the ATAC transmitter and heads to meet with the now-landing Gogol. Eric lifts an enormous concrete planter, but is distracted for a moment by nothing in particular, and then Bond shoves him backward out the window with a very tall candlestick. Eric slides down a slant of roof, and then completely off the monastery and down the cliffs surrounding it. Columbo chases Christados to the helicopter. The two fight back and forth the whole way, but at the last second, Bond and Molina show up to snatch the ATAC away from Christados. Molina points her crossbow at the man, but Bond stands in the way, insisting that he should serve his time. Meanwhile, Christados draws a knife slowly, intending to stab Bond, until Christados himself is stabbed in the back by a knife thrown by Columbo behind him. Bond takes the ATAC to Gogol, but then turns and tosses it off a cliff, where it is obliterated when it hits the ground. I really like the smash. Yeah. Because it's clearly in microscopic pieces the way it landed. <laughs> this is funny because it's not even remotely a gotcha moment. Mm-hmm. It's not like the audience is like, is he going to give it to Gogol? Is Bond a bad guy all yeah. of a sudden? But clearly he's not going to, but now he destroys it. So now nobody gets it. I do love the reaction, though. That Gogol just laughs about yeah, it? Yeah, he's just like, oh, well. <laughs> yeah, he's like, all <laughs> right. It's worth the shot. Yeah, it was too good to be true. Um, he's amused and he laughs genuinely before returning to the chopper empty-handed. And I like the gesture he does at the end. He's just like, this guy, what are you going to do? <laughs> I get that the ATAC is important, but I doubt that Gogol himself would come to collect it. Seems like something that they would like send a team to retrieve. Bond and Molina turn to leave and find Bibi and Jacoba tending to Columbo's wounds. Well, seems that Bibi has a new sponsor. We cut to that night and Bond and Molina are making out on board the Triana, just as Q is patching the Prime Minister through to congratulate Bond on a successful mission. Molina invites Bond for a moonlit swim and says, for your eyes only, before stripping completely nude. When the call comes through on Bond's watch communicator, he takes it off, and the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, or a Margaret Thatcher impersonator, is mistakenly connected to Max the Parrot, who carries on a chat by repeating several of his known catchphrases, including asking the Prime Minister for a kiss. Meanwhile, if there is anything I can do for you... Give us a kiss! Give us a kiss! Well, really, Mr. Bond. (laughs) Q quickly disconnects the call, and we cut underwater where silhouettes of Bond and Molina swim naked. And that's the end of our film. For your eyes only. Not my favorite Bond. It's, it's, it's not i do like that it was down to earth like a straightforward spy story and that yeah. everything kind of makes sense but there's there's nothing ludicrous here i i really like moonraker i think <laughs> i think you oh, like one or the other for sure and moonraker is is my choice i i like i like aspects of moonraker but again because roger moore is, is so old at this point all of his villains are very old men right and and not particularly capable old men so then the finish is always just like, uh, you got tired running toward that helicopter. Yeah. Now I got the magic box. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, although I, I will say that the villain death in Moonraker is much more interesting. Yes. Um, and Drax isn't old. He's pretty old. I don't know. He's jet black hair. and Yeah. Um, it's funny because like, I, I was talking to my dad and my niece after this. is like, this is one of my lesser favorite Bonds. Um and my dad says, it's actually my favorite Bond. <laughs> oh, really? I think it's a lot of people's favorite Bond. I was like, really? oh, okay. Because it, it's a very straightforward, I think it's a more down-to-earth, almost like a realistic spy story that you could see happening. There's there's no part of this that seems like, well, that's completely insane. Yeah. That would never happen in a real mission. Like, this doesn't seem, this this could happen in the same universe as the Seawolves, which really happened. 
Yeah. But Moonraker has all this ludicrous stuff. I think I think what I miss here is the big set pieces. Mm-hmm. And and the closest thing we get to a really amazing set piece is the chase that ends up in the bobsled track. Yeah. Which and, I feel like is incredible. Yeah. I mean, but it goes on for quite a while. It does. It, they it, all do. All yeah. these movies are over two hours long. Yeah. And, and again, I just, I love Roger Moore. Um, I'm most of his Bond movies though, aren't, aren't my favorites. Uh, and, and you know, they, they get considerably cause like after this is what uh view to a kill after this is octopus, Octopussy, then a view to a kill. Yeah. Um, yeah, Octopussy is really hard to watch. Octopussy is the worst one. Yeah, but A View to a Kill is great only because it's got Christopher Walken. Um, yeah, View View to a Kill it feels like a return to form for the Roger Moore movies, except for yeah. that he's uh, ninety six or ninety seven in that movie. <laughs> he's, he's super old. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like, because he started with Live and Let Die, mm-hmm. which is really fun and it has all these mystical things that they added and there's this jw pepper is just fucking awesome (laughs) and there's people running across alligator heads there's all this cool shit that i just love about that movie and then the next movie we're like we bring jw pepper back we got christopher lee and and a dwarf character and we're on an island and Mm -hmm. and magical golden guns and and shit and it's like this is awesome this is so crazy i love it and then the next one is the spy who loved me which again really interesting story we introduced the jaws character mm-hmm. it's one of my favorite books of the series and uh and that whole story is so fun and that's really a, a beloved uh, yeah. james bond outing and then we bring jaws back from moonraker mm-hmm. it's like so the first four from him are just non-stop great those are the four movies that i probably rented the most of the the entire bond series and then this came out and it was just kind of it just felt like a real movie it didn't feel like a james bond movie and then in Octopussy, they try to get some weird stuff in there, but they do so much of it that it's like, I'm not even interested in any part of this. And also, it came out the same year as Never Say Never Again, which is so much more fun. Like, they finally let Sean Connery do, like, a Roger Moore-style Bond mm-hmm. movie with Never Say Never Again. But, um, and then I guess View to a Kill is the, the only other one after that, right? Yeah. He only had seven. But I definitely like the front half of his stuff. Yeah, I haven't seen any others. <laughs> yeah. What would you yeah. think of this one? This is all right. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't bad. It wasn't the best. I think it still gets a thumbs up from me. Yeah, oh, I'd give it a thumbs yeah, up. I'd, I'd watch it again. Uh, how many Bond movies have you seen? Not that many. Um, you know, when when you guys did that marathon, I think I popped in for, for one, one or two. And yeah. uh, I... You know, I think I, I, I know I saw like Golden Eye when it came out. Right. Yeah. Um, and I've I've seen at least one or two Daniel Craig ones, and I really don't like those. But yeah, I mean, I guess they don't have a lot to base it on. It's yeah, I feel like um, it's almost like Roger Moore got two turns as Bond because he did like the fantastic silly movies for the first four, mm-hmm. and then the next three were a little bit more down to earth, like realism james bond movies and then the timothy dalton stuff got even more down to earth it yeah. was like very like dark action movies oh yeah very dark and yeah. then pierce brosnan got to be a little bit more fantastical again like uh and, and it just got outright silly with die another day i just hate that movie yeah it's yeah. um but then it seems like they go back and forth hopefully the next one will be a, a stylistic bond i want them to go back to the 60s um you know young bond 
someone that can stick around for a while and do the original stories again but in a very stylized way would be really fun a casino royale a doctor no but make it in the 60s and really exaggerate the characters as much as you can who's your pick for the next bond um it depends on if they're if they're doing 60s or if they're doing present day um I think I always prefer an unknown for for uh, any version of this story. Yeah. But uh, I don't hate uh, Tom Holland as much as a lot of people do because um, he's he's been sort of pitching himself for the role for a long time. I feel like he's too young. He's definitely too young right now. Yeah. But even if they announced him as the next James Bond right now, it wouldn't happen for another five or six years. Yeah. So he's going to be older. And, you know, the reason we don't have – cavill right now is because they said he was too young when the first one came out and it's like well that was a mistake because <laughs> cavill should have been james bond for the entire daniel craig run and that was just a mistake yeah 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 do you have a do you have a bond pick richard well i mean i i i look at like what other people have like listed i mean i think idris elba would have been great yeah, ten, 10 years ago i agree yeah. yeah um and uh you know tom hardy has I know like been a contender, but I think he's also now too up there in age. Um, people talk about like Henry Cavill. Um, uh, I think Henry Cavill still has a decent shot at it. I mean, he's what like late thirties. Yeah. Um, so I think like, uh, like I, and there was, there was an actor though that, because like Tom Hiddleston is a good one. I see people say Damian Lewis all the time and I don't really think he's right for it either. I can't remember the actor that I, I had seen that I was like, oh yeah, no, he'd be great. And now I'm blanking on his name. So I would go with like John Boyega. That that would be my pick. Is he uh, not- again, he's 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 basically Tom Holland's age though. They're very young actors. Yeah. I think I but I don't know. I guess for him I I feel like he could pull off suave a little bit more than like like not saying that I don't love Tom Holland because right. I would swoon over him any day. But I'm just saying, like, in terms of being, like, a sophisticated man. I agree. I, I would go towards John Boyega first. I think if you do Boyega, that it has to be present day, though. Yeah. Because it doesn't make sense him as an MI6 agent in the 60s. Yeah, I suppose. But I, I do love that choice. I think I think he's more debonair yeah. than, than Holland is, for sure. Yeah. Celine Murphy, no. I, again, probably too old at this point. Richard Madden. It's got a good look. I don't like Richard Madden. This and again, I'm being sexist. I'm only picking my male, my male picks <laughs> yeah. for for Bond. Who's gonna be James Bond, the female character? <laughs> James? Oh, no, James. Okay, <laughs> I thought you. I said... put the emphasis on just the exact same word. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, Lily James. Lily James. Just for her name. I was gonna say like Vanessa Kirby. Uh, Lily James. Lily. Oh. Um. That's not her name though. So who so who's who's your next Bond song pick? Uh anybody? Uh Bruno Mars. Yeah. I think you do a, a fucking badass throwback song. Sure. I feel like I would either go like Lizzo or Ooh, um Lizzo. like a Billie Eilish song. There was oh, a long time they did Billie Eilish. Th- they did it? Yep. No, oh, no Time to Die, the new no one. No Time to yeah, Die was the yeah. Oh, I haven't even heard it yet. I I for a long time wanted Sigalo to do one. Obviously, he's not uh he's a bit canceled, but um at the time I thought he would have been a a fun choice for. Yeah. Me. I like Lizzo. I like that. That's yeah. a good yeah. pick. 
thumbs up all around. Mm-hmm. What are we doing letterboxed, Richard? Um, well, I have this at 14. Okay. Uh, I put it below Fear No Evil and above Sphinx. Oh, Fear No Evil. Oh, my. Well, because Fear No Evil was like nothing. I it was like, this movie is not what I expected. It That's to true. Be. It, it, it is more fun, fun than we thought it was going to be coming. Yeah. Out. Like if, if I had to pick like someone who had not seen either of these movies, I'd say, oh, Fear No Evil. We got to watch that. Um, Fear No Evil still in my top 10, guys. <laughs> Just so you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's at nine. It's not going to stay there long, but it's still up there. I have this one at 29. 29, okay. 29 out of, what are we at now? 85. 85? Yeah, so it's below The Postman Always Rings Twice and above Atlantic City. It okay. feels right in there. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I have it in 10th place. Uh, it's just under Excalibur and just above Friday the 13th Part 2 for me. Our director here was John Glenn. Godspeed to him. When Peter Hunt, the editor of the first few Bond films, took over the director's chair, Glenn was brought on as editor and also edited The Spy Who Loved Me, Moonraker, and unofficial James Bond film The Sea Wolves on his way to directing this. He also directed four more Bond films, Roger Moore's last two and both of Dalton's, as well as Ace's Iron Eagle 3. Yeah. The only one that Sidney J. Fury didn't direct. The director's chair was first offered to On Her Majesty's Secret Service director Peter R. Hunt, who was busy directing Death Hunt with Bronson and Marvin earlier this year. Writer Richard Maybaum also wrote She, Security Hazards Expert, which will get a mini-sode this year, and later Octopussy, View to a Kill, Living Daylights, and License to Kill. At this point in the franchise, he'd written every James Bond film except... You Only Live Twice, Live and Let Die, and Moonraker, and continued to write screenplays all the way through to the end of Dalton's run. It's crazy how long people lasted on the, on yeah. the franchise. Well, You Only Live Twice also had a very famous writer. Yes, that's true. Who wrote it? I forget. <laughs> Roll Dahl. Oh, that's right. The other writer, Michael G. Wilson, played a Greek priest at a wedding in the film. He also wrote Octopussy, A View to a Kill, and both of Dalton's films, The Living Daylights and License to Kill. He also created the James Bond Jr. animated series. Oh, man. He has cameos dating back to Goldfinger, but he also appears in every Bond film from The Spy Who Loved Me to No Time to Die, likely on account of being Albert Broccoli's stepson and one of the current executive producers of the franchise with uh, Barbara Broccoli. The novel came from Ian Fleming. He... His IMDb page is almost exclusively everything Bond, though he did the novel for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Mm -hmm. which was adapted by Roald Dahl into the film again. He actually worked with intelligence services during World War II, as did his step-cousin, actor Christopher Lee, whom Fleming had wanted to play Dr. No in the film. Unfortunately, Lee took too long to accept the role, and it had been recast, but he would get his turn as a Bond baddie for Roger Moore's second outing, The Man with the Golden Gun. The music came from Bill Conti, regular composer for Paul Mazursky on films like Harry and Tonto, Next Stop Greenwich Village, and An Unmarried Woman. He also composed Rocky 1, 2, and 3. I would say Rocky 1 is his most famous uh, score. Last year, he scored Gloria, Private Benjamin, and The Formula, and he's back later this season to score Victory, Carbon Copy, and Neighbors. That's a busy year. Yeah. Uh, Later in the 80s, he scores All the Right Stuff, Karate Kid, Masters of the Universe, fun, fun titles. The theme here came from Sheena Easton. She played the singer in the title sequence. She was 22 at the time. 
She performed this film's theme, but she also played Caitlin Davies in Miami Vice. She was Crystal Hawks on an episode of Briscoe County Jr. named mm-hmm. after her character. She voiced Sasha LaFleur in All Dogs Go to Heaven 2 and the All Dogs Go to Heaven TV series that I didn't know existed. Cinematographer Alan Hume was the DP on Watcher in the Woods, Caveman, This, Eye of the Needle, Back for Return of the Jedi, Octopussy, Supergirl, View to a Kill, Life Force, and A Fish Called Wanda. The other editor, John Grover, he was an assistant editor on Dr. Zhivago and 2001 A Space Odyssey. And then for the Bond films, he did The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker, as well as The Sea Wolves, unofficial Bond film, and Octopussy. This was his first full editing credit, followed by cutting Life Force, Labyrinth, and Living Daylights and License to Kill. So a lot of L films. Mm Mm-hmm. Roger Moore played James Bond. We just had him in the Cannonball Run. We've also seen him in Folks and the Sea Wolves in the last couple years. He was Simon Templar in 118 episodes of The Saint. He was also Tab Lazenby in Cats and Dogs 2, The Revenge of Kitty Galore. Carol Bouquet played Melina. She was Conchita in That Obscure Object of Desire. She's dubbed in the English version on account of her thick French accent, but dubs her own voice in the French dub. In an early draft of the story, Molina was not avenging her parents, but her deceased boyfriend, Agent 006. Which uh, we would have a 006 in In Goldeneye. Yeah. Molina is Greek for honey, which is the name of the first canon Bond girl from Dr. No. She had auditioned for Holly Goodhead in Moonraker, but was not selected for that film. After Ornella Muti was not available, the part was offered to Sylvia Christel from Private Lessons, but she was unavailable as later 1981 release Lady Chatterley's Lover had gone over schedule. Topol played Columbo. He's in Fiddler on the Roof, and we saw him last season as Dr. Hans Zarkov in mm-hmm. Flash Gordon. Lynn Holly Johnson played Bibi. Canonically, she's supposed to be 16 during the events of the film. In real life, Carol Bouquet and Lynn Holly Johnson are only a year apart in age. She's back later this season as Jan Curtis in Watcher in the Woods, as she was also Ingrid Bannister in MacGyver episode The Enemy Within where she's brainwashing her husband, Mm -hmm. who's a member of not the Phoenix Foundation, but the precursor to the Phoenix Foundation. Uh, It's funny because the car chase scene in this movie reminded me a lot of the car chase scene. I thought that too, actually. In that same episode. Yeah. Julian Glover played Christados. He's General Veers in Empire Strikes Back. He's Walter Donovan in The Last Crusade. He's Grand Maester Pycelle in Game of Thrones. Glover came very close to playing the role of Bond earlier in the franchise's history before Moore was cast. He had previously appeared with Moore on The Saint, Season 2, Episode 20, The Lawless Lady. Cassandra Harris played Lysel. She was Mrs. Lloyd Palmer in Rough Cut last season. During the production of this film, she married Pierce Brosnan and introduced her husband to Albert Broccoli on set. Oh, wow. Sadly, she passed away in 1991 from ovarian cancer which 22 years later would also take the life of her and Pierce's daughter, Charlotte Brosnan, in 2013. Michael Gothard played Locke. He's Felton in The Salkine's Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers. He's Dr. Bukowski in Life Force, and he reunited with Julian Glover the following year in Ivanhoe. Jack Headley played Havelock. His character was loosely based on Jacques Cousteau, who was an acquaintance of Ian Fleming's. He played Lieutenant Fred Williams in The New York Ripper. She played Moneypenny since the first film, Dr. No, through to the last Roger Moore Bond. Desmond Llewellyn played Q. He appeared for the first time in the second Bond film, From Russia with Love, and has appeared in every Bond film through Brosnan's second to last, The World is Not Enough, except Live and Let Die. They replaced him in Die Another Day with 
I think John Cleese takes yeah. over as like R or something like that. Yeah, um, he takes over in The World Is Not Enough. Oh, uh, like they introduce him and then yeah. he's the Q in the next movie. The character has been played in the Craig Bonds by Ben Wishaw. Jeffrey Keane played the Minister of Defense. This is his third of six consecutive turns as Sir Frederick Gray in the Bond franchise, from The Spy Who Loved Me all the way to The Living Daylights with Timothy Dalton. Walter Gotell played General Gogol. This is his third of six consecutive turns as Gogol, from the same film to the same film. He also shows up in a couple MacGyver episodes mm-hmm. and an X-Files episode. Charles Dance played Klaus. This was his first film role. He's Tywin Lannister in Game of Thrones. He's Brother Noopsie in The Golden Child and Benedict in Last Action Hero. Yeah. More recently, he was Hearst in Mank. He was Lord Mountbatten in The Crown. And in 1989, Dance portrayed Bond author Ian Fleming in a British TV movie called Goldeneye. <laughs> I love him in Act- Last Action Hero so much. Yeah. I've just killed a man. I did it on, on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> Paul Angelis played Kara George. He played Ringo Starr in Yellow Submarine. Jack Claff played Apostas. He was Red Four in Star Wars. William Hoyland played McGregor. He was Von Krupp in Hellboy. Paul Brook played Bunky. He shows up in Return of the Jedi as Malakili, the Rancor Keeper. Eva Ruber-Steyer played Rublevich, returning as the same character from The Spy Who Loved Me and comes back as the same character again in Octopussy. I think that's secretary to Gogol. Fred Bryant plays the vicar. He was the dairyman Crick in Tess last season. Robin Young, as I said, was the girl in the flower shop. She's back next season in the best little whorehouse in Texas. Uh, She won Playboy's contest to be a James Bond girl. She got a spread in the magazine. James Bond has a historical connection to the magazine, as some of Fleming's early short stories, like the Hildebrand rarity, were published in the magazine first. And in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, we actually see a shot of Bond perusing an issue of Playboy. Bond is even seen as a card-carrying member of the Playboy Club in Diamonds Are Forever when he hands over his wallet. John Wells played Dennis Thatcher. He was Q's assistant in the 67 Casino Royale. He also played Dennis Thatcher the following year in a TV movie called Anyone for Dennis. Dennis Thatcher being Margaret Thatcher's husband, Mm -hmm. another impersonator. Tony Aleph played the Maltese captain. Not to be confused with the Maltese Falcon. Uh, He's an auctioneer in Never Say Never Again. Maureen Bennett played Sharon, Q's assistant. She was Heather Babcock in The Mirror Cracked last season. Andy Bradford played the guard at St. Cyril. He was 009 in Octopussy. He was a Hawkman in Flash Gordon and a Voltan Man in Hawk the Slayer. Jeremy Bullock played Smithers. He returns as the same character in Octopussy, and we saw him earlier this season as a reporter in The Final Conflict, but he's perhaps best known for his appearances as Boba Fett in The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, a character which just recently got its own spinoff series on Disney+. Plus. He also passed away just over a year ago. Caroline Tulacasi played a girl at the pool. Shortly after the film's release, she was outed as transgender by a British tabloid, and in 1991, she became the first trans woman to pose for Playboy. John Hollis played Ernst Stavro Blofeld, uncredited because we can't use that name, uh, in the opening sequence. He was Lobot in Empire. He was one of Clytus's observers in Flash Gordon and a Krypton elder in Superman 2. Chai Lee played another girl at the pool, and she's back next week as fourth model in The Great Muppet Caper. Chris Parsons played Skier. He was Forlom in Empire. He's a dinner guest in The Shining, a Nazi soldier in Raiders, and he's back for Eye of the Needle, Ragtime, and Reds later this year. Lenny Raven played Ski Jump Spectator. 
This is his fourth of five Bond appearances after Goldfinger, Her Majesty's Secret Service, and Spy Who Loved Me, and he comes back for the next one, Octopussy, in 83. Robert Wrighty played the voice of Ernst Stavro Blofeld in the beginning of the film. He was a monk in The Omen. He's also the uncredited narrator of Hawk the Slayer last season. I don't even remember a narrator in that. Yeah. I guess it just reads the prologue at the beginning where they're describing the sword of the mind sword or whatever. Vanya Seeger plays Girl Who Kisses Henchman. She was Paula Phillips in Extro. George Sweeney plays the helicopter pilot. He's Lou in Revolver. Victor Turjansky played Man with the Wine Glass. So this is the guy, <laughs> uh, after they ski across the table on that deck and then they land in the snow, mm-hmm. there's a guy that's standing at the edge of the deck with a wine glass and he's just confused about yeah. what just happened. This is his third time playing the same character in the Bond franchise. Really? <laughs> Fans might recognize him from being surprised at things Bond did, since before this he's credited as Man with Bottle in Moonraker and Man with Bottle in The Spy Who Loved Me. But every time he's drinking and Bond does something weird and he's like, did I imagine this? Harry Van Engel played Cube Ranch Technician. He shows up as a reporter in Burton's Batman. Viva played a girl at the pool. It looks on IMDb like this is her only credit, but we've previously discussed an actress who goes by the single name Viva, the mother of Abby Hoffman, who appeared as the ex-queen in The Forbidden Zone, and as a Cytherian girl in Flash Gordon, it's possible those two Viva pages need to be combined, but I couldn't locate her in the shot, so I don't know for sure. Lizzie Warville played another girl at the pool. She's a Russian girl in Moonraker. Allison Worth plays another girl at the pool. She shows up in Octopussy two years later, but those were her only two feature film appearances. Max the Parrot actually reappears later in the Bond franchise for The Living Daylights in the kitchen of the safe house. It was a personal pet of the stunt woman, Sid Child, who doubled for Cassandra Harris and Carol Bouquet in the film. Max was gifted to Child by Bond's deceased wife actress, Diana Rigg, after doubling for her in an episode of the 60s Avengers series. Hmm. So it's nice that Rigg got to contribute to the, the, yeah. the Bond franchise one more time with more than just a headstone. Those are all the credits I have for this one. I think that's everything for For Your Eyes Only. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing The Great Muppet Caper, which IMDb describes like so. Kermit the Frog, the Great Gonzo, and Fozzie Bear are reporters who travel to Britain to interview a rich victim of jewel thieves and help her along with her secretary, Miss Piggy. We leave you now with a trailer for the Great Muppet Caper. This is the most fabulous diamond of them all, the legendary baseball diamond. And this would be the most sensational heist of the century if it weren't for... Announcing the Great Muppet Caper. It's a new Muppet movie. With what? Your superstar. Say cheese. A glamorous nightclub, and the fun begins. Mickey, that's my new receptionist dancing out there. She's sensational. Forty-five words a minute, about average. A hired car. I can only take you as far as the lobby. And the danger begins. A backstage romance. And the jealousy begins. Don't put a door between us. Uh Oh, come on! Oh, 
brilliant strategy. We're going to have to catch those thieves red-handed. What color are their hands now? <laughs> and the adventure begins in the Great Muppet Caper. Starring everybody, everybody, everybody and me. Watch for the, the Great Muppet, Muppet Caper. Caper. What's a caper? I think it's a small chicken. <laughs>